Turn it on and rip the knob off. Hey guys, and welcome back. Yes, we're back. It is the Wrestling Memory Grenade, episode number 62. Ask Us Anything, part deux. Part deux, guys, that's part two. It's our second Ask Us Anything episode. And After the first one was so successful with our listeners, I had to bring it back. I asked you guys, hey, send in your questions, and I'll get to all of them on our next episode of Ask Us Anything. Well, that was my intention until... Until we got over 40 questions sent in, and I was like, wow, it was more than I expected. I appreciate you guys very, very much. Unfortunately, I don't know if we can get to all of them in one episode of Ask Us Anything. So what I'm going to do is I set a stringent time I'm going to follow here, and I'm going to try to keep it within that time frame. And I'm going to answer as many questions as I can within said time frame. And if I can't get to your question today, I do apologize, but I promise you it's at the top of the list for Ask Us Anything 3. Another bonus episode of The Grenade right around the corner, but for now it is Ask Us Anything Part 2. And as always, you guys can listen to the Wrestling Memory Grenade as part of the WrestleCopia Podcast Network on WrestleCopia.com and all of your favorite podcast streaming apps, Apple, Spotify, Google Pod, and so many more. You name it, we're likely on it. And for those of you who don't know, I am your host, Ray Russell. And before we get going with this Ask Us Anything, the special episode of The Grenade, episode number 62, God, it feels good to be back. I just want to say thank you guys from the bottom of my heart, the kind words, the thoughts, the prayers, the well wishes that have been coming in. For those who don't know, the last time I recorded a show, we thought my grandmother was going to be out of the nursing home and living with a relative. Unfortunately, she didn't make it that far. Um, Within days of the recording, actually within a week of the recording, My grandmother succumbed to her many illnesses, and unfortunately, she passed away. Um, I was happy that I got to see her just briefly before she passed away on Saturday, August 20th. Um, We went, me and my wife went and visited her. She gave us a small list of of groceries to go pick up for her. I drove over to her house after seeing her to uh, cut the grass and just basically take care of the yard. And uh, as I was finishing up and getting ready to leave her house, I received a call from my aunt who was also at the nursing home at the time that we left. And unfortunately, maybe not even an hour after I saw my grandmother, she passed away. Uh, We don't know exactly what the cause was. They didn't do an autopsy, but uh, based on what happened, it seems like it would have been a blood clot issue, maybe a stroke, but it was looking like a blood clot issue. Again, she was just a few months away. December, she would have been 80 years old. Um, For those who don't know, I've mentioned this before. She wasn't just my grandmother. She raised me from birth. She essentially was my mother. She was everything in my world, my rock, my sounding board, uh, my voice of reason over the years. Uh, She meant a lot to me and my entire family. To say she'll be missed is an understatement. I love you, Mama. Thank you for everything you ever did for me. I don't know where I would be. Literally, this is not just me saying this. I don't know where I would be in this world uh, if I hadn't had you to guide me and and take care of me as a child and um, just guide me as an adult (laughs) to do the right things, even though it wasn't always easy to turn the other cheek or be the bigger person, 
Uh, it was really her influence that made me a better person. So I love you, Mama, and I miss you very much. Uh, but with that out of the way, I, I just want to thank you guys again. That's the reason why we're, we were going to come back and start recording again. I thought everything was going to be stable for a while. Unfortunately, almost immediately, uh, a week later, my grandmother passes away. We laid her to rest a week later, Saturday, August 27th. That brings us here, though. We are getting things back in gear. We're getting the show back up and running. And I just want to thank you guys so much. So much positivity and kindness uh, thrown at me in a time when I, I really needed it. I really needed it. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to lie to you guys. I, I, could, I could use it, and I, and I appreciate you guys very, very much. Um, but getting back to the show, if you guys haven't been following the Wrestling Memory Grenade or the WrestleCopia Podcast Network on social media, you guys are really missing out, especially on Twitter, but also on Facebook. But if you head over and follow us on Twitter at Wrestling Grenade, that's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade, home of the free prize giveaway. Also follow and like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Wrestling Grenade. Why follow? I have been uploading pictures like crazy, scanned pictures from magazines, great pictures, great articles, things you guys just don't want to miss going back to the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even the 90s. Lots of great wrestling history, lots of great memories on our social media accounts as of late. Hundreds of pictures, dozens of articles, lots of great stuff out there. Some real rarities, some real gems. I think you guys really get a kick out of that. So if you haven't done so already, make sure you follow us on Twitter and follow and like us on Facebook. It's also, as I mentioned, home of the free prize giveaway. And all you have to do is follow us on those social media accounts for your chance to win. That's it. You automatically are entered into each and every future free prize giveaway. And our current giveaway, guys, upcoming, we have two, count them, two free prize giveaways. In fact, first, a special Ricky the Dragon Steamboat Intercontinental Champion. Ricky the Dragon Steamboat autographed 8x10 promo pick circa 1987, as well as a Honky Tonk Man Intercontinental Championship autographed promo pick from 87 as well. Winners of both of these promo picks to be announced as part of our upcoming WrestleMania 3 Special Edition of the Grenade as part of the 1987 in the WWF Project. And we'll be back with more 1987 WWF goodness on the next episode of The Grenade as we jump into the month of February on the road to WrestleMania 3. And all you have to do is follow us on Twitter, follow and like us on Facebook for your chance to win each and every future free prize giveaway. It's that easy, guys. And make sure you stop over also to our YouTube channel. And you can find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash wrestling grenade. I've been uploading a lot of videos in, in the past months from the WWF covering our project in 1993, the WWF versus USWA feud as well. We've got some NWA 1989 goodness over there. And most recently, some of the early 1987 WWF stuff popping up there on our YouTube channel, as well as some other fun little gems in between. Most recently, the big cage match between Dusty Rhodes and Kevin Sullivan down in Florida, where Santa Jake, Jake the Snake Roberts, shows up and costs the American dream. What well, loser leaves town? Yes, the American dream. Leaves Florida, or does he? And I promise, yes, we've had some downtime over on YouTube. We were pumping things out week after week there. But again, with everything going on, when I shut down recording the shows for a few weeks here, I also shut down working on the, the YouTube side of things. But never fear, we'll be back very soon. More YouTube videos right around the corner. Lots more 1987 goodness from the WWF and a whole lot more planned as part of our YouTube channel. Also, I should mention, now is a great time to become a patron. A WrestleCopia patron, that is, is our revamped and all-new WrestleCopia Podcast Network Patreon account over at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That's patreon.com 
slash wrestle C-O-P-I-A. Now just 12 tiers to choose from. Every one of them revamped, guys, so go check them out. All brand new, 12 tiers to choose from, patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. But you guys know my favorite tier by now. It's that $5 all-access tier. Includes our insanely detailed show notes, early access to many of our WrestleCopia podcasts, listen days sometimes even a week early for the rest of the listeners. Also, unedited versions of many of our shows, including Tom Robinson's TR Shocks the World, Patreon-exclusive watch-along series as part of the all-access tier that covers many WWF and WCW pay-per-views, Coliseum videos, Saturday night's main event, Clash of the Champions, hey, Flair vs. Steamboat, Clash 6. So much more was added over there, patreon.com slash WrestleCopia, but we've added even more to the all-access tier, guys. Yes, not only do you get the insanely detailed show notes, early access to the podcast, unedited versions of many of our shows, and of course, yes, the watch-along series, but also now remastered versions of the Wrestling Memory Grenade, the earliest episodes of the Grenade, the NWA in 1989 project. That includes enhanced sound quality and new content, originally edited out of our initial broadcast of the shows. Well, I edited them right back in. New conversations on 1989 and the NWA, And now, yes, even more for $5, guys, even more added to the all-access tier and any higher tier over at Patreon. It's digital downloads each and every month. Lots of goodies to explore there. Our gift to you, digital downloads for our loyal patrons. And you get all of that, all of that for the low, low price of $5. I'm barely clearing $3.80 at this point, guys. You pay me $5, they take out their fees, PayPal gets their fees. I'm barely making $4 off of these great gifts. We're talking the all-access tier, gets you show notes, early access, unedited episodes, exclusive watch-alongs, remastered early versions of The Grenade, and now digital downloads as well for your reading and viewing pleasure. No subscription, cancel any time. Give it a go for a month. I think you'll like the content we offer, and every penny of it goes right back into the podcast network. So please... Help us pay some of the bills for the Wrestling Memory Grenade, Monday Warfare, TR Shocks the World. Let's keep those shows and more up and running for the years to come. And with all of that out of the way, guys, it is time to begin. Ask Us Anything Part here this week. It's part of the grenade. And we have something like 40-some questions here. I'm going to get to as many as I can. I'm going to try to answer the questions in the order in which they were received. So just trying to be fair to those who sent the questions in. However, I'm going to start off with actually the most recent questions because we're going to have a little segment here where we talk about the current product in the world of professional wrestling. And we're going to kick things off talking and discussing the current product here with several questions I just received in the last, say, two, three days. So very timely questions. I'd like to get these in while they're timely and before even more happens. And we kick things off. We go all the way to Red Hill, England. And Grayson Cooper, who writes, what do you think of the current WWE under Triple H's regime? Fun little question to start off with here, Grayson. And I appreciate our listeners over in the UK. We are doing really great numbers over in the UK. The Grenade Show remains in the charts over in the UK. What do I think of Triple H's new regime? Well, I think it's still a little too early to tell, but he's done a lot of good work. Now, a lot of it's common sense. Vince had things so screwed up in in my, my personal perspective that only a fool wouldn't be able to come in and fix some of these issues almost immediately. And I think that's what Triple H done. And I'm not, I'm not crapping on Triple H. I think he's done a a great job up until now. He's bringing a lot of guys back pretty fast. 
I'm sure they know what they're doing. It's not AEW, hey, let's hire guys and we'll figure out what we're going to do with them later. I'm sure they have some form of an idea of what they're going to do with these talents when they're bringing them back. Triple H had an idea for most of these guys to begin with. These were A lot of these guys were Triple H guys, not Vince guys. That's why, hence, they were released to begin with. Uh, but Trips is in power now and he's bringing back the guys he really feels can make a difference in the company. I think so far they've done a good job with them. I haven't seen a whole lot of it. I've read a lot of good things. I, I do keep up with the pay-per-views. I read what happens on Raw and SmackDown. Sometimes I catch some of Raw or SmackDown as well. So I haven't seen everything, but from what I read, it's uh, pretty good going so far by who was uh, apparently named just this morning Chief Content Officer, whatever that means. My only worry for Triple H right now is after that uh, heart incident uh, and um, his health scare, and, and he continues to have, obviously, a health issue ongoing for the remainder of his life with his heart, is taking on all of this uh, so quickly. And, and I admire him for doing it and doing it so well, especially the creative side of things. So what do I think of the current WWE product under Triple H? I think he's doing a great job. Obviously, long term, will tell the tale. I think I personally believe, and I hope, for the wrestling business, for the fans, that it only continues to get better. Maybe I'll start watching it on a regular basis again once I see that the storylines will continue to make sense week to week. The episodic storylines will uh, draw me back in personally as a fan, I hope. I can only hope because I, I lost complete interest in the WWE product several years ago because of the booking that we've seen. So I can only hope that Triple H continues this and wins me back someday as a full-time fan. So I'm very positive on, on what can be. And right now, I think it's too soon to say, and I think it's not fair that, uh, you know, the very minute we have Clash of the Castle or whatever pay-per-view or whatever TV show there is, and everybody's favorite doesn't win a match, then, oh, Triple H blew it. Man, he, he, had, a, he had the opportunity, he blew it. He's, he screwed up his, his shot at running the company. Because your favorite didn't win? Lots of selfish people out there on social media. And I don't think anybody's ever going to like every single finish, every single guy that gets pushed or woman that gets pushed. I don't think they're, you know, you're never going to please everyone. So yeah, there were finishes that I didn't care for since Triple H has taken over. There have been feuds that I don't particularly, I have no interest in now that Triple H has taken over, but I love what he's doing in general. I love that he's trying to make this make sense again and just have a professional wrestling company. Go figure. So thus far, I say kudos to Triple H and what he's done. We move on. Edward Davies, also from England. This is uh, Bracknell, England. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. I might have an issue with a couple pronunciations throughout this episode, so I apologize in advance. Edward writes, your thoughts on WWE Clash at the Castle. My thoughts were it was a solid show. Again, I've been out of the loop. As far as TV goes a lot, I have been trying to read up on, on everything, and, and I follow the videos and the storyline packages and everything. So I know what we're looking at going in, but I feel like we're still... Triple H isn't really hot-shotting anything. The creative isn't really hot-shotting anything. So I feel like they're stuck in certain situations where they don't just want to ignore it, delete it, pretend it never happened. They're slowly getting through what they were forced to take on. And hopefully from there, you know, things get better. There's just a lot of guys floating around right now that I just have no interest in. And some of those guys work these, this Clash of the Castle. Uh, I've seen a lot of people putting over the Sheamus and Gunther match, the Gunther match, if you will. I knew going in pretty much what it was going to be. I wasn't shocked that they beat the living crap out of each other. I, I enjoyed it thoroughly as a, as a fight. Again, it goes back to Ronnie Garvin and Greg the Hammer Valentine for me just slugging it out, beating the crap out of each other. These guys took it a little further. Obviously, Sheamus <laughs> bleeding everywhere just from the, the chops and the hard shots. But, I mean, those guys went out there, and they just gave it their all, and I appreciated that as, as a fight. A fight, fella. 
I thought there were some solid things on the show. I thought some of the things didn't really work for me. Some of the matches ran just absolutely too long. The six women's tag I wasn't a fan of. I'm sorry to say, you know, for anybody who enjoyed it. I thought there were just a lot of miscommunication, mistimed spots. Not necessarily crazy, dangerous botches, but just not everybody was on the same page. It wasn't it didn't really flow for me. And then the fact that it just went on and on and on. It felt like, I don't know the, how long the match actually went, but it felt like it went at least 20 minutes. And to me, I, I mean, I could have done without... So maybe take it home in 12 or something, but I get what they were going for. There was a lot of big names in there. Bailey and you got to get over her group makes sense. And on the other side, Bianca Belair was involved. So you got to give your top players time in the ring. And that's what they did there. So I can't really fault them. I was happy. They opened with that match. I feel like had that been later in the show and, and placement of matches and, and, and uh, it's really underrated. It's a very important thing because I feel like had that match went on later in the show, it would have really slowed things down. So I was happy where it was opening the show like that. Now the the main event, I you know I discussed this briefly with my brother just uh, I believe yesterday. I'm over the interference. I'm over the Usos. I'm over. I mean, I'm fine with Roman Reigns and his character. I'm not really sure what the story is. Why he doesn't work house shows? Why he's not really on TV a whole lot? Why he's skipping multiple pay per views? Working six man tags as world champion on pay per views? I don't really know the whole ordeal or what, what the reasoning is. I haven't really dove into it enough to, to really care. I'm a fan of what they're doing with him in general, but these finishes just feel redundant on these pay-per-views. And you might say, wait a minute, just last month, Brock Lesnar took a tractor to ringside and elevated the ring. That doesn't happen every month. And that's true. I agree with you 100%. That's not what I mean. I mean the interference, the interference from the Usos and now the younger brother, Baby Us. Reigns is a believable main event heel. I buy into it. He should be champion. There's nobody else there right now that could carry that belt, in my personal opinion. Right now, I say right now. Overall, I found the pay-per-view, I was indifferent. There was some good wrestling on the show, but then there's people I just don't have any emotional investment in, like Dominic Mysterio. I don't care that he turned heel. They've been building that, it feels like, for like a year and a half. Finally, they pulled the trigger. I think that's why AEW went and did the stupid gun club deal where Billy Gunn's sons turned on their father because they knew this was coming. It's like, oh, let's do it first just to say we did it. Now, I'm sure that's not going to get over over an AEW, but this doesn't get over short-term, at least with me. I have no emotional interest in Dominic Mysterio. He just doesn't look like a wrestler. He doesn't feel like a wrestler. I'm not saying he can't handle working some of the talent in the WWE, but I just don't feel his personality. And it doesn't help matters for me personally that I lost interest in Rey Mysterio a long time ago. Rey Mysterio in the ring, no matter how great of a guy he is in real life, and no matter how tremendous he was for, let's say, two decades in the ring, he's a shell of himself. He's a shell of what he used to be in the ring. And yes, he can still do some cool things, but I feel like he's on borrowed time. I mean, he's had X amount of knee surgeries. The guy's got a lot of injuries and surgeries over the years. I applaud him and everything he's ever done in his career. I loved Rey Mysterio throughout the 90s and the 2000s. I supported him as world champion when Vince McMahon made him go out there and do a job every week just to prove that the small guy can't beat the big guy, pal. So I'm a, I'm a true Rey Mysterio fan, but I just have no interest in watching Rey Mysterio in 2022. So to watch his son, who I care even less about, turn on him, it did nothing for me. This whole story, this, this Edge faction that somehow morphed into a Finn Balor, Damian Priest faction, none of that made any sense. We all know why. Cody Rose got hurt. Vince panicked, said, I need another top babyface, pal. So let's just drop this gimmick we just started with Edge as some like new demon, devil, magical, dark-powered guy, and let's just turn him back babyface, have him come out, run side to side, and get the crowd up. 
that doesn't work for me. I, I didn't forget what Edge was just doing, and I wasn't even into that faction, but to turn on Edge, and now Damian Priest and Finn, Finn Balor are running the show here, I hate to dump on some of these guys. It's just me personally. I don't have any interest in them or their storyline. I'm not saying that can't change. I'm just saying right now, there's just a lot of matches in the mid card that just don't interest me whatsoever. That's just the deal right now. But again, I'm sitting back and waiting. I'm not trying to be negative. I, I'm not quote unquote complaining about what the WWE is doing right now. I know they have who they have. They have the storylines they have, and they have a vision of where they want things to go. There's a lot of talent that's just come back. Braun Strowman, as of last night, returned to the company. That I'm very curious to see what they do with them in the long term. And I'm wise enough to know that Triple H, he, he just took the book over, say, what, six, seven weeks ago? And he had two options. He had the old WCW 2000 option of just shutting everything down and kind of rebooting the company, which I was a little bit on board with because I would have loved to have seen it. Hey, that sounds fun on paper, right? But so, yeah, I guess they had that option to kind of just restart everything, reboot the company. But that, that in one way, you're... you're admitting defeat like everything we were doing was wrong and on the other end you're kind of insulting your fans like just forget everything that's been happening we're going to tell new stories and, and that was an option i suppose but i appreciate the fact that they're just kind of taking things in stride bringing back guys as they quickly as they can while it still makes sense and furthering their storylines in the process so i'm not giving triple h days weeks i'm not even giving him just a few months to make the product overall better i'm giving him i, I understand this is going to take some time and if I can enjoy things, say, by, by Royal Rumble time, I'll be happy. Sorry I went off on a little bit of a tangent there, but I guess to answer your question, did I, my thoughts on the pay-per-view Clash of the Castle were that it was a fun little show to watch. It didn't do a whole lot for me overall. I felt like they left off some names here that they could have utilized better than some of the guys that they actually put on the show. But to each their own, we all have our own preferences of who we like and don't like. So I'm not really complaining there either. So overall... There was a lot of good wrestling, I'll give him that, and uh, we'll move forward, and I just look forward to things getting better in the WWE. Lots of questions out of the UK here, uh, recent questions just sent to me in the last few days, and I have to wonder, is it because Clash of the Castle was in Wales? Because we have yet another question sent in, this time a, uh, another WWE question from Pontefract, England. God, I hope I said that right. If I didn't, again, I apologize. Jensen Arrowwood asks, who should take the title off of Roman Reigns? Well, I think it's too early to say for sure who, because again, like I said, I'd like to see what they do with a lot of these guys in the next six months. That answer right now, there's nobody, if you ask me, that can take the title off of Roman Reigns. You'd be a fool to do it because you're just changing the title to say you changed the title at that point. None of these guys are going to carry the belt like Roman Reigns. None of these guys are at the level of Roman Reigns. You could argue Cody Rhodes. But he's out injured, let's, let's remember that. And also, I feel like Cody needs uh, another big win heading into a storyline with Roman Reigns, which we may see at the beginning of next year. But overall, Triple H, he's brought back several names that uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what he does with them over the next several weeks, next several months, I should say. Right now, I could care less who wins a Royal Rumble match, but maybe by the end of the year, I'll say, hey, man, I'd like to see these two or three guys, any of these guys. They'd be great winning the Royal Rumble going on to WrestleMania. So who knows? We'll see. But right now, Roman Reigns, I guess the closest you could argue with the name buzzing in the air right now uh, the, the, to take the belt off of Roman Reigns in the short term would probably be Cody Rhodes if he were healthy, which unless he's like Super Cena and, and rehabs at a Wolverine pace, shout out to Marvel Comics, that doesn't appear to be happening anytime soon. So right now, I'm curious to see really who they line up for Roman over the fall and into the winter. 
But I wouldn't be surprised if the guy held the belt till the Royal Rumble. And honestly, then I think that would be a good time to pull a trigger if you could drop the belt off of Roman. If if the rumors are true that, that Roman would be working the Rock at WrestleMania. If that's true, Roman doesn't need the belt. The Rock's not going to win the belt. So the title doesn't even need to be involved in such a match, should that match take place. Now, obviously, back up to that, if the Rock's really not coming in, then yes, you leave the belt on Reigns all the way to WrestleMania, I would think. However, if the Rock comes in, if Reigns truly is working the Rock at WrestleMania, then Reigns can easily drop the belt at Royal Rumble or, or what have you, as long as they have time to build someone up to be a credible champion. So I couldn't really give you a direct answer there. I do apologize for that, Jensen but hopefully you get an idea of of my thought process there. We move on to Jason Richland, Dallas, Texas. Who would you like to see return to the WWE next? Sasha? Braun Strowman? Bray Wyatt? Naomi? Someone else? Well, Jason, it appears you sent this message last week, but since that time, Braun Strowman, as I just mentioned a little earlier, has returned to the company as of last night on Monday Night Raw, so we'll scratch him off the list. Who would I like to see return to the company most of all? Well, I think uh, before some of the issues that transpired, I, I might have picked Sasha Banks based on her name, uh, based on who she was prior to leaving, but based on the way she left and some of the pictures that came out at the Comic-Con where she wants to stand six feet away from her fans, to take, her male fans to take pictures and things like that, I, I've kind of lost a lot of respect for Sasha uh, in recent weeks, months, whatever the case may be. I'm not a big fan of taking your ball and going home every time you don't like a storyline, every time you're not utilized the way you want to be utilized. It's a company. If I make the French fries at McDonald's and they tell me today I'm making a cheeseburger, I might not like making cheeseburgers, but that's my job. At the end of the day, even though everybody's performing in the ring, they're all athletes, this is a television show. If I'm working on a TV show and you tell me my lines are this, this, and this, then my lines are this, this, and this. If you tell me that me and my on-screen girlfriend are breaking up, I really have no say. Okay, we're going a different route with my character. That's what this is, a character that you're portraying for lots of money. I get trying to protect your value on the roster, but if it bothers you that much that you become so upset that you want to walk out of the company... Every time you feel you're being misused, then maybe this isn't the business for you. And I'd like to see what you would go and do without the professional wrestling business, because I'm not sure, you know, I don't know what Sasha's other interests are in the world, but if if she truly loves the business and, and this is all passion, maybe it's just youth and she's going about it the wrong way because maybe there's a little bit of immaturity there. Maybe it's because some of who her family is, she thinks she has special pull. I don't really know what the situation is. I, I don't even really want to speculate, which I just did. But up until this last time she quit, I was the biggest fan like of any any WWE ladies wrestler. Sasha Banks, I didn't even have to hesitate. If you asked me, who's your favorite? Who do you like? She would have been, boom. Everybody, name would have came out of my mouth before you finished the question. I guess I'm just not a big fan of uh, Mercedes Vernado, which is her real name. Uh, at least what I've seen of her in recent weeks, months, whatever, whatever the case may be. So, But getting back to your question, and I apologize. Again, another tangent I went on there. Who would I like to see return to the WWE? So we saw Braun Strowman return. He wouldn't have been my number one pick anyway. Although I gotta, I gotta tell you, when I saw Braun Strowman get released, that was a head scratcher to me. Naomi isn't a difference maker to me either way. I, I felt like she was just filler. She was there. She was fine on there. They really needed to change her gimmick. The glow thing was getting old, but she does absolutely nothing for me. I never go, oh my gosh, it's a Naomi match. I just have have no interest. It's like 
She can do a few athletic things in the ring, but she hasn't progressed or learned to do more or put together a real match, I don't feel, uh, in X amount of years she's been there. Do I think they'll be back? Well, the rumors say they will be back, and I think if you can work something out with Sasha to where she can't keep doing this, then go ahead and do that. And and plus, now there's going to be continuity that there wasn't before. Maybe that'll also clear heads will prevail in the future if there are any issues. Naomi, will she be back? It's possible. Obviously, she's married to one of the Usos. So it's probably only a matter of time. These are She's, not again, to me, not a difference maker whatsoever, so no big deal there. Bray Wyatt, would I love to see him return? I'd love to see the original Bray Wyatt, the Eater of Worlds, return. Obviously, we can't never have the real Wyatt family back in business because, you know, unfortunately, the passing of Luke Harper. So I don't know that we can have a Wyatt family again, which is my favorite version of Bray Wyatt. But I'd love to see that version of Bray Wyatt back, which I don't think we'll ever get because, as Triple H has even recently said, Wyndham Rotundo, a.k.a. Bray Wyatt, he's, he's an extremely creative guy, and it just seems like his creativity goes far beyond that of a Bray Wyatt character at this point. I was not a fan of The Fiend. I tried to like it because eh, a lot of people did. And as it went on, it just got more convoluted, more ridiculous. I didn't really understand what it was supposed to be at times. I don't know that he did, uh, based on what they were doing with him. They clearly buried him on the way out. But my biggest problem was the Fiend character wrestling. Now, we had The Undertaker who felt no pain. He sat up and things of that nature, but he still made it through a match. It was still a wrestling match with The Fiend. Things are just so much different. It's it's hard to comprehend what exactly The Fiend is, what The Fiend was. So I really don't want to see that back. But if I had to pick one more name to return, obviously it would be Bray Wyatt as the original Bray Wyatt character. Tobias Meyer of Stuttgart, Germany asks, do you believe Vince McMahon has really stepped away from working in the WWE? Do I really believe Vince McMahon? I, I, I believe he's, he has to be. Uh, he doesn't really have much of an option. I know people are saying, well, he can still talk to him on the phone. Yeah, he can do a lot of things. He probably does have a lot of conversations with them on the phone or in person. They are family after all. But let's go back. Let's remember, what did Vince McMahon do? He used to tear up the scripts going into Raw and rewrite them on the fly. He no longer has that power. So even if Vince McMahon calls Triple H at, say, noon and gives him an idea and Trips decides to go with it or not, that's what it is. I don't see Vince McMahon calling in at 9.37 in the middle of Raw and saying, well, you need to do this next segment, pal, and, and Triple H and the boys going, yeah, okay, let's do that instead. Let's drop what we have written down here and we'll change it up because Vince wants this. I, don't, I just don't see it. I, I think with the names coming back and the words now permitted to be used, I think it's safe to say no matter what influence Vince McMahon still has on the product, if any, I think it's safe to say the Triple H and, and anybody else that's working with him in creative are in uh, major control of the situation at this point. And it's really great, again, because it goes back to continuity. There's continuity again on TV, and hallelujah for that. Jose Delgado, San Antonio, Texas, asks me my thoughts on the Dexter Loomis character and working against The Miz. Well, okay, first of all, Let's answer the second question first. Thoughts on Dexter Loomis working with The Miz. Okay, well, it's confusing. I don't really understand the story. I don't really understand the reasoning. Um, You know, they just had a cage match last night between Bobby Lashley and The Miz. Dexter Loomis comes out at the end, cost The Miz his his U.S. title match against Lashley. I'm not really into The Miz in a story like this, so I don't know that they necessarily picked my favorite person for Loomis to work with in this fashion. There was rumors briefly there where it was actually he was coming for AJ Styles and The Miz was going to be collateral damage in the process, but that appears to be you know off, obviously, at this point. He's clearly gunning for The Miz. So I'm curious to see you know where this goes. Is this just going to lead to a match or two? Or is there some kind of a gimmick match planned? Like, where do you go? What's the end game 
when you get these two in the ring against each other? That's what I want to know. Now, as for the Loomis character, obviously he looks like a serial killer. He has one facial expression, one mannerism, and normally Jim Cornette gives Johnny Gargano shit for things like that and other guys shit for things like that. Obviously, this works for the Loomis character. I think he, he does it great. I don't know how he keeps a straight face, specifically that camera angle last night, the uh, overlooking the top of the cage down at Loomis, laying flat on his back, staring straight up at the Miz with that serial killer look in his face and that Chester the molester mustache. I mean, I love the character. And obviously the last name, a play I feel on Dr. Loomis from Halloween. And then, of course, maybe even Billy Loomis from the, from the original Scream movie. So as of right now, I'm enjoying the character in the WWE, where it goes from here. I'm curious because, again, once he gets past The Miz, that's what I want to see. Where does Loomis go after The Miz? That's what I'm really intrigued about right now. So I'm kind of just watching The Miz, to me, as a placeholder to see where Loomis goes, how elevated he gets, and where they can evolve his character into. Because like I said, I'm, uh, there's a lot of names right now that I think by Royal Rumble time, I'm going to be really excited to see them all involved in the 30 man. And that's the first time I can say that in several years. So let's hope things continue to go well here for all these guys. And we have one more WWE question before we move over. Oh boy. To the AEW side of things, Alan iron beagle play on Alan iron Eagle. And Hey, I have a beagle. Two things I learned after purchasing a beagle puppy. One, they love to howl. And two, according to the internet, anyway, they are the hardest dog to train the most stubborn dog. And they are lovable. They, they love kids. They love people. They love other dogs. They just don't like to listen. Nevertheless, Alan Iron Beagle, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina writes, what is with the WWE commercials during the premium live events? They air video packages of wrestlers that seem to last forever when they could be using the time to air promos or additional matches. What gives? Good question there. And I think I talked about this on our State of the WrestleCopia Network address with uh, Steve, my sometimes co-host Steve Ekstat, last episode. And I think we touched on this a little bit, but I'm going to explain it here a little better now that I even have a better understanding of what's going on. And so for those who watch the premium live events, or as I still call them because I'm old school, I just call them pay-per-views. But for those who watch these events on the Peacock, there are two versions of the Peacock. There's the $5 version with built-in commercials. You have to watch commercials during everything you watch on the Peacock app. And then there's the $10 version where there are supposedly no commercials. You can watch your TV shows and your wrestling events without commercials intact. Well, the reason for all of these lengthy videos in between the matches is because when those who pay $5 and have to watch commercials are watching commercials, those who pay $10 are stuck watching these lengthy videos, as you pointed out, which are also technically WWE commercials. So pretty much you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't when you're watching the premium live events. You're going to get commercials of some way, shape, or form. It's just over here, it's a, it's, maybe it's a video of Kevin Owens or Bobby Lashley. And if I'm paying $5, maybe it's a commercial about tampons or whatever it is they advertise during these periods. So really, when you pay for the $10 tier of Peacock, you're paying for no commercials in the pre-recorded stuff. Like, I can watch WrestleMania 3 without a commercial. I can watch an episode of Old Superstars without a commercial. I can watch Quantum Leap without commercial. So that's really what you're paying the $10 tier for. When you're watching the live WWE events on the Peacock, you're watching commercials either way. It's just they could be WWE version or the Peacock's version of commercials. Either way, you're essentially getting ads, which yes, I agree. Because of this structure, it eats into the time on the show and it does cut into 
possibilities of an additional match or matches going longer on the show. And what's even weirder, and, I, and nobody has been able to explain this to me yet, and I haven't even heard Dave Meltzer explain this, why when we were on the WWE Network, there was no specific time. The wrestling, a pay-per-view could go on for as long as it needed to go on, and then it ended. So if they structured a show to last three hours and it lasted three hours and 40 minutes, then so be it. However, on the Peacock, when they structure something to last three hours or four hours, it must end within that time. And I still have yet to figure out why that is. When they owe nothing to Peacock, Peacock is streaming it live. It's not interfering with anything. So I'm, I'm, I still haven't figured out why on the Peacock, why shows have to end at a specific time. I feel like we've regressed in that department, but I have a lot of issues with Peacock, so I won't get into all of that right now. What I will get into is the AEW and all these shenanigans going on over there right now. And boy, is there a lot of them. Ronnie Walsh from the Woodlands, Texas. Gotta love a city that starts with the word the. The Woodlands, Texas. Ronnie Walsh asks, did you watch AEW All Out? Your take. If you didn't watch, do you plan to watch after reading results? Your thoughts on the pay-per-view. All right, Ronnie, well, here's the deal. I did not watch all of AEW All Out. I saw bits and pieces after the fact. I simply just didn't have the interest going in that I, I typically do. It was just, I don't know the names of all the AEW pay-per-views in the order in which they aired, but I want to say two pay-per-views ago, I broke down and purchased an AEW pay-per-view alongside my, my uh, 14-year-old son. He chipped in a few dollars as well on the pay-per-view, but I broke down and purchased a, an event, an AEW pay-per-view, because I had interest in the product. I thought, this was supposed to be a really big show. I want to say it was the ma- the show with the, the dog collar and the MJF and CM Punk dog collar match and things like that. At the end of the show, I saw people praising a couple of the matches much higher than I really. I really didn't think anything was out of this world on the pay-per-view that I was expecting. I wasn't expecting great things from top to bottom. And really, when it left, I it was kind of flat for me. A couple of decent matches, nothing over the top five star or anything of that nature. So I really, I wasn't planning on getting any future AEW pay-per-views going to wait and see approach, but as things go on, there's a lot of new names coming into AEW. I'm not really following it. Like I was as far as the TV goes, there's names. I don't even recognize or put into prominent positions on the shows. I'm wondering how they got there. And then we have all of the backstage issues as well. And CM Punk. And I've listened to Jim Cornette's side of things and I get his side of things. I'm not even going to argue any of that. And his, in regards to CM Punk versus all the elite boys and all that. But at the same time, I'm not a fan of a lot of the things CM Punk's doing either. So I'm just not a fan of anything in general. I haven't been a fan of anything John Moxley's done really since he's come to AEW. I was expecting big things when Dean Ambrose arrived in AEW in the first match. Okay, well, he's just getting his feet wet, you know, back back in another promotion. Okay, I get that. Second match, that wasn't very good either. When's he going to start having good matches? And as it went on, I'm just, I'm sorry, guys, but but slicing up your head doesn't equal a good match. And I know he didn't do that at All Out against CM Punk, so I'm not referencing that, but he did do it in the last 87 matches prior to that. And then you mix in lackadaisical storylines and stuff like that, and it's just, I haven't had a lot of interest in the product in general in AEW right now, so did I watch All Out? No, I didn't. My thoughts were, when I was reading the results, how long was this show? I just kept scrolling what felt like for years trying to get to the main event. I don't know how many matches were on that show. I didn't go back and count, but the way I read it, was they tried to cram every single human being they could onto the show, whether they were in the match, running in, coming out after the match, cutting a promo, interrupting a promo. Some of the matches felt like they had no business even being on the pay-per-view. I feel AEW pay-per-views just run entirely too long, and kudos to Tony Khan for wanting to give everybody the most for their buck. But we see how that works when WrestleMania was one night and going six and seven hours. The crowd just can't take it. 
How many wrestling matches can you watch in a row before you lose interest, before you stop investing interest into the storylines, the angles, and the matches you see? I was excited for the fact that AEW was going to exist, not because of the guys they were bringing in initially, the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega and those guys, not particularly my cup of tea. But I love the fact that there was going to be a competing, real promotion that could see levels like WCW that could eventually someday maybe not be equal to the WWE, though that would be ideal, but somebody that is a viable secondary promotion where guys can work, where we can see more wrestlers, more wrestling on the TV. I looked forward to all that, and early on, a lot of the storylines made sense. A lot of the guys in there were working wrestling matches, and as time went on, it was more and more the youth movement, which I get. I'm not a big fan of some of these guys. Some of these guys need to retire, but there just feels like there's a lot of younger talent that's telling the older talent, this is how we work now. This is how wrestling works now. I don't know who decided that one day, but I also feel it's the generation, the generation, not just in wrestling, but the generation in the world. You don't tell me what to do. I don't care about your experience. And sadly, it's, it's got AEW to where it is right now, which is, and we're going to talk a little bit more about some of that in, in the next question. But in general, I just, I truly hope things turn around. There's a lot of billionaires out there that own a lot of companies. Most of them don't run the company. They pay other people that know what they're doing to run the company. And Tony Khan here, it's like he has a bunch of real life toys that he can manage and tell what to do. Book dream matches from his fantasy world with his money. And it's his money. He he can do whatever he wants to with it. But if he wants to run a wrestling business, he needs to hire wrestling people and put them in charge. Step back and let somebody who knows what they're doing run a show because Booker of the Year and all this other nonsense, I don't, I don't understand that. Because he put together a bunch of top talent and said, you wrestle you, I want you to take on you two. And he has all of these, in, in Dave Meltzer's eyes, five-star, six-star matches, whatever the case may be. So that makes him Booker of the Year. But what are you drawing? What are your ratings? Where's the compelling storyline that drove me to want to watch this match? We're not seeing any of that. You hire 20 new talents, and you don't do anything with 18 of them. You don't know what to do with them. First of all, AEW hiring too many people. And I don't even begin to understand how you drop the ball with somebody like an Aleister Black or even a Rusev when he, when he initially came in. So the number one thing I think AEW needs to do right now is Tony Khan, which I just don't feel like it's ever going to happen, needs to. The ego's in place. He believes you know his own hype. Uh, we've seen he, uh, they keep comparing him to... A coked out Herb Abrams. I can't really argue that right now based on the way he comes off the shit he says. With a live mic, I would be embarrassed to say as a billionaire, as a owner of a serious billion dollar company, if I'm Warner Brothers and I'm looking at these things, I'm wondering, what are we dealing with here? Who are we dealing with? This guy's liable to explode live on television at any time. So that's my worries there overall. All out, did I watch it? No, I understand there was some good wrestling. I understand there was some unnecessary matches. Sounded like a mixed bag to me. If I have the time, I'd like to go back and I, and I would watch the Punk and Moxley match later this week just to see if we finally get a good Moxley match, a good wrestling match. And finally, our final current question up to date. Ziggy Daniels of Muncie, Indiana asks, two words, CM Punk. Two more words, media scrum. Your thoughts on the entire AEW implosion as of late. Okay. So here we go. There's a good way to close out the discussing the current products here, WWE and AEW. The media scrum, which uh, 
Ziggy Daniels is referring to took place directly after All Out, and I did happen to see at least CM Punk's part of that media scrum. Oh boy. I'm not going to get into anything he said. It's all over the internet if you want to read it. If you want to go listen to Jim Cornette talk about it, they cover it in length as well over on his podcast. But essentially, Punk goes out there on a live mic sitting next to the owner of the company, Tony Khan, and, and basically shits on the company, the way it's ran, the EVPs. He mentions them, obviously, the Young Bucks, Kenny Omega, buries Hangman Page once again. He buries Colt Cabana. A lot of people saying Punk goes into business for himself here. That's how I saw it as well. Like, you just don't do this in a billion-dollar company. This guy next to you, he's paying you to wrestle. and Keep your mouth shut outside. This would have never happened in WWE. So while I listen to Jim Cornette's take on this, and I agree with a lot of it, Cornette defending why Punk said what he said and, and essentially agreeing with the things that CM Punk said, I'm not necessarily questioning a lot of the things that Punk was discussing. I just question if these are things you talk about in public when you're working for the company. It's just bad business in general. So my thoughts, everybody's in the wrong somewhere, shape, or form in this whole thing. And then it didn't end there because during the press conference, Punk essentially calls out these EVPs and says, if you have a problem with me, say it to my face. And that's exactly what happens is Punk leaves the press conference and he goes backstage So Punk goes off on his merry way after putting over the local bakery that he enjoys pastries from, and he runs into said EVPs backstage, and they take issue with what Punk had to say as part of the media scrum, if you will, and they get into a physical altercation. The story goes that Punk swung on one of the Jacksons, depending on whose version you read. Some say it was Matt, some say it was Nick. Either way, he swung on one of the Jacksons, leading to a uh, all-out brawl of sorts, a brief brawl anyway, where Ace Steel who's been working as an agent recently in AEW, probably hired because of CM Punk. For those who don't know, Steel, and for those who don't know, Steel actually trained CM Punk, so, you know, there's that as well. But Steel got involved. This is an agent, mind you. Got involved in the fight. No, he wasn't trying to break it up. He was actually trying to aid CM Punk. He actually took a chair and threw it at Nick Jackson's face, giving him a black eye, and some are reporting even knocking him out cold. This is your agent, by the way throwing a chair into the face of one of the young bucks and then turning around and reportedly biting and pulling the hair of Kenny Omega, Ace Steel, no longer, reportedly no longer with AEW, and I sure would hope not. Now, we know Eddie Kingston just recently got suspended for pie-facing Sammy Guevara, which is another issue in itself backstage, but now we have guys swinging on other guys, throwing chairs in people's faces, biting, pulling hair, Ace Steel easily out the door, makes you wonder what's going to happen Something else needs to happen here. If Eddie Kingston, who I'm also not a fan of that that human being either, and I have my reasons, but if he's pie-facing somebody and getting suspended, I can't wait to see what comes out of this one. And Tony Khan's got a lot of shit to deal with right now. This entire company is a fucking clusterfuck train wreck like you wouldn't believe. And no, I'm not anti-AEW at all. I want them to succeed. I want to see a second promotion. I grew up on multiple promotions. I grew up on the WWF and Jim Crockett and the AWA, and World Class, and Mid-South, or excuse me, UWF. I love the ability to flip channels and watch a variety of different wrestlers and different styles and different promotions. So I welcome AEW. I want them to exist. I want some of these stars to thrive. Unfortunately, they got to get their shit together, and that's an understatement. That's just the way it is right now. Unbelievable. And for those who, if you haven't seen the CM Punk portion of the media scrum, do yourselves a favor. 
you have to absolutely go out of your way to go find this unbelievable punk spinning what felt like it may, it may not have been, but it felt like 20 minutes just burying, essentially burying the company with the owner sitting right next to him, making faces the entire time. Very uncomfortable, even cutting Tony Khan off at points. So just an interesting scene all around. And that'll wrap up the current product portion of this episode of The Grenade. We move on with Wrestling Memory Grenade show-related questions. These are questions related to our show here, the Wrestling Memory Grenade, and perhaps the podcast network as a whole. We start off with Patrick Fogarty, Summit, New Jersey. He asks, do you have plans for any watch-alongs for your 1987 in the WWF project? Will you be covering any of the house shows in lengthy format? All right, thank you for your question, Patrick. The answer here is yes and no. Will we be doing watch-alongs? Yes, we will. We'll be doing some very special watch-alongs. We have a very special definitive episode of WrestleMania 3 upcoming. It will not be a watch-along. However, you'll be able to listen to a watch-along version of WrestleMania 3 very soon over on patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. You can listen to it there. We'll be covering the live version, a live version watch-along of WrestleMania 3. Going to be a fun time when we get there. But as part of the Grenade Show, we will be doing a definitive version of the event, meaning we're going to break down every aspect of the event, go into detail about each and every match, each and every segment of the show. As far as future watch-alongs in 87, we have many planned. Hopefully, we can get in some house shows as well, as you just asked. And a lot of that going to be found over on our Patreon account. But yes, we will be breaking down the pay-per-views, WrestleMania 3, Survivor Series 87, and all the Saturday Night's Main Event, we're going to be breaking them down in detail right here on the grenade as they happen. Alfonso Sanchez, Los Angeles, California, writes, I presume you'll be discussing the flop that was Missy's Manor on your 1987 WWF project. Do you know if there were plans for Eddie Gilbert to jump to the WWF as well? Another good question, Alfonso. From my understanding, from my, my memory, and we haven't got to Missy's Manor yet, that we will very soon, Missy's Manor was going to be the talk show that replaced Rowdy Roddy Piper. Of course, Missy was hot stuff down in the South, and Vince clearly liked what he saw. He brought Missy up. He did feel her voice was a little too Southern. Go figure. But the show, which is actually out there on YouTube now, thanks to Missy Hyatt, Missy's Manor, I don't know how she got a hold of those, those videos, but the WWF got them to her somehow. So most of, if not all of Missy's Manor's talk shows are out there on YouTube. You can check those out. Of course, none of them ever made air. And once you watch them, you'll see for very good reason. And Missy will admit it too. That just wasn't what she was cut out to do. Would have loved to have seen Missy brought in as a heel valet, maybe eventually finding herself someone to manage to work against the Macho Man and Miss Elizabeth. That would have been fun. Obviously, I, th I don't think Missy would have been able to get her hands on Miss Liz. But then again, Missy wouldn't have had to worry about getting her hair ripped out of the roots either by Sunshine. Now, getting back to Eddie Gilbert, my understanding was there was really no real big offer there for Eddie Gilbert to come to the WWF. He simply wasn't the size that Vince McMahon liked Eddie kind of on the shorter side. But if I remember correctly, in order to make sure Eddie didn't do the jump, I think Bill Watts even gave Eddie the book around this time. I think Eddie Gilbert had the book around this time where he had his hands in booking the shows, something that Eddie Gilbert always wanted and loved to do. So it was kind of an extra incentive to keep Eddie Gilbert from jumping over to the WWF. Of course, this is right before Watts sells to Crockett. But of course, as everybody knows by now, nothing works out, nothing pans out. And within a matter of a couple tapings, Missy Hyatt sent back on her way down to the UWF and then eventually Crockett. And the rest is history. Karen Ninza of Chicago, Illinois, 
writes in, she says, until listening to your recent episode of 1987 WWF, I didn't realize how Ron Bass made his debut in an insert promo and on the jobber side of a six-man tag team match. What was the point of hiring talents like Bass only to debut them in a failing spot on the card? Thanks, Karen, and we thank you for listening, clearly listening to the show. I, too, was a little shocked, taken aback, the fact that Ron Bass made his debut in an insert promo during a Blackjack Mulligan match, and then a week later, Bass being stuck with Jimmy Jack Funk, and I, I can't even remember who the third guy was, on the losing side of a uh, essentially an enhancement talent, a job guy tag team, the losing side of a six-man tag, that was Ron Bass's television debut in the ring. Now you asked, why even sign Ron Bass to a contract? Why even bring him in only to debut him in a failing spot on the card? Well, that's a good question. And, and Ron Bass and several others of his caliber at this point in time in 1986, 1987, a lot of these guys were brought in because the WWF expanded their touring schedule from an A show and a B show to an A, B, and C show, three shows most nights of the week. And that meant they needed more talent to spread across those cards. And Ron Bass was just one of many that they used for this particular reason. And a good little hand to have on your roster is you can kind of plug Ron Bass in anywhere you need him. A grizzled vet that looked apart. Okay, we go on to Oliver Vertanen from Lappinranta, Finland. Lappinranta, Finland. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. I do apologize yet again. Oliver writes, I'm very sorry to hear of your passing of your grandmother. My condolences as I write you. Well, thank you, Oliver. He says, during your time away from recording, I went back and had the opportunity to listen to your 1989 NWA shows and learned a lot of things I never knew. Do you have plans of doing any more NWA or WCW projects in the future? Oliver, I kind of touched on this on our last Ask Us Anything, but I'll, I'll say it again here. I really don't know where I'm going next. We kicked off with NW89 because it was really just an era, a year that I really wanted to dissect and analyze, even for myself. So I had a lot of fun doing that. I did 19, I chose 1993 WWF really for my co-host at the time, Stephen X, that I thought that would really intrigue him. He had really fond memories of that era, even if it wasn't the best era in the World Wrestling Federation. I thought I'd throw him a bone and, and give him something that would really intrigue him and, and drive him. And he was involved in the first five, six months of the 1993 project before he had to dip out due to personal family obligations and work. Of course, by then we were already halfway through the year, so I had to finish things up. I have to finish anything I start. And that's what I did all on my own. We finished up 1993 in the WWF. From there, I made a few posts asking people what they would like me to review next. A lot of people selected 1987 in the WWF. A lot of people selected a couple of other options as well. So it was really down to me deciding which one I wanted to do next. and. Did I want to alternate NWA, WWF? Could I do the NWA or WCW again next? I could have. Truth be told, one of the reasons why I stuck with the WWF for right now was because we're still building our listeners. We're still building our fan base. And honestly, at the end of the day, I, the WWF draws more listeners than any of the other territories or any of the other promotions. So, I mean, that, that played a factor. I'm not going to lie to you. But am I going to just continue to stay with the WWF? Absolutely not. I'm going to go all over, and I do plan to go back absolutely to the NWA and WCW. Lots of years, lots of eras. I can't wait to cover there. And then in the interim, if you have any interest in the Monday Night War era, you can go over to our sister's show, Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. We've chronicled every episode of Raw versus Nitro, beginning with September 4th, 1995. I believe right now we're in the month of June, 1996 over there. So you can actually go over there and listen to quite a bit of uh, 1995-1996 talk when it comes to WCW. 
But do I plan on doing more projects involving the NWA and WCW? You damn betcha, man. Sherry Keys of Bakersfield, California asks, can we expect you to venture outside of the United States and document wrestling history from places like Japan, Mexico, or the United Kingdom? Sherry, I'm a big fan of wrestling in all of those countries. And I tried to do my due diligence when growing up to, to learn a lot of the talent, specifically in Japan, more so than the other countries, because it was more co- because it was covered more in the magazines. However, by the internet era of the mid-90s and forward, I've done nothing but spend time researching the wrestlers, researching the eras, researching the promotions in Mexico, Japan, of course, world of sport over in the UK, and not only those countries. I'm talking Argentina, the Dominican Republic, Otto Vons in Germany and Austria. So yeah, I have a vast knowledge of pretty much all of the wrestling culture from around the world over the last... Uh, countless decades of at least in the throughout the 1900s and i absolutely welcome and love the idea of discussing any of these countries and their rich history and professional wrestling i just i feel like i need someone to discuss it with and for that i i, I would i would like to welcome like an expert a lucha libre expert to discuss mexican wrestling history a pro resu expert to discuss the history of japanese wrestling all japan new japan iwe jwa whatever the case may be can you expect me to venture outside of the United States? I can only hope so. I, I, I see it happening down the road. When? I can't specifically say, but hopefully not too far. All righty. Who's your daddy? Scott Bradley from New York, New York writes. I went back and listened to the shows you did with TR. That's Tom Robinson recently. I love your chemistry and finishing each other's thoughts. How do you know, Tom? Have you guys worked together before? When will TR return to the air? Tell him I said hello and hope you guys do some more shows in the near future. Well, thank you, Scott. First of all, I've I've been blessed with the opportunity to work with Tom on uh, maybe a dozen occasions, and he's always done right by me. He's always been honest with me, very honest with me about his situation, about life in general. Tom's a great guy, and I absolutely enjoy doing the TR Shocks the World shows because not only does Tom shock the world, sometimes he shocks me live on the air. And it's always a fun time. You never know what you're going to get. We're kind of all over the place and we get to discuss a lot of things. And what's most fun is, is sometimes Tom goes against the grain. He, he kind of goes and sides with the thing that most people don't agree with. And that's what makes the show enjoyable because sometimes we disagree on something and we just have a great time talking about it anyway. Sometimes it's just pure fun. We're, we're doing comedy bits. But I'd have to say like 99.9% of everything we do is ad lib. There's really no format to the shows other than maybe some bullet points. And yes, I have noticed that we, we kind of think alike. We, 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 uh, we have, as you put, finished each other's thoughts. I, I've noticed on shows when I go back and edit them. So it's just a fun time working with Tom. Of course, Tom's just had some issues go on recently, like I, I mentioned in the past with, with his eyes. He had surgery. He's back to work. He's doing great. He's expressed his interest in, do, in doing some recordings, just a post on Twitter in the short term until he can go back to uh, full form and the TR Shocks the World show, which he has expressed he'd like to do on a weekly basis. So hopefully very soon, very soon, hopefully. We get TR Shocks the World back up and running, and it'll be a great time because it's a great time to be a fan again, uh, whether you're, you're watching AEW implode or in, in Tom's world, it's doing great, or you're watching WWE begin to thrive again under the banner of Triple H. So it's a, lot, it's, a, it's a good time to talk wrestling and just tell old stories as well, talk about the old times as well. So I will tell Tom, you said hello, Scott. We appreciate you, and hopefully, yeah, TR Shocks the World returns very soon. One final question in regards to the WrestleCopia Podcast Network from Rami Pal, or is that Paul? I have no idea. 
from Florence, South Carolina. He says, you seem to have a vast knowledge of wrestling history as a whole. I get why you covered the prominent eras of the WWF and WCW for the masses, but I'd really love to hear your take on the good old days before the national expansion. Any updated, or I should say any updates on the territory show you were promoting a while back. Okay. And Rami is referring to the podcast we had planned to drop. We're going to call it the money in the miles. And that show, along with all of these other shows put on hiatus was uh, everything was going on over the last few months here in my life. Uh, but I absolutely love the territory era, P- perhaps more so than even the WWF and WCW era of professional wrestling, or certainly equally too. I love the territory era, so I-, I love nothing more than to sit down and just talk about old angles, old time wrestlers, and all of the stories that go along with it. So if I have anything to say about it sooner rather than later, we'll get some territory talk up and running here on the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. Again, I can't give you a definitive time right now of when these shows will begin to drop, but it's certainly on my to-do list, and it's certainly high atop my to-do list. But until we get the other shows, the Monday Warfare show and the Grenade back into the swing of things, everything else is on hold for the short term. And Rami, I appreciate you writing in as we move on to non-wrestling-related questions. Just two of them here, guys, so don't worry about it. For those just listening to wrestling questions, we'll get through these two non-wrestling-related questions, and we'll get right back to the wrestling side of things. It may not be the showdown at the OK Corral, but it was the WWF versus WCW, Raw versus Nitro, the Monday Night War, the Ratings War, the NWO, the Attitude Era. While everyone discusses who won the war, it's truly the battles within the war that made this weekly episodic rivalry so exciting. We break it all down, from episode reviews to backstage news to those ever-important TV ratings. It's Monday Warfare, The Battles Within, exclusively as part of the WrestleCopia brand, available on WrestleCopia.com and all of your favorite podcast streaming apps. guys and welcome back to the grenade unfortunately or fortunately depending on how you look at it a lot more news continues to come out about this whole aew scandal or whatever you want to call it and i felt the need to interrupt the show that we were doing the ask us anything episode to break in with more news on this situation as i'd already answered some questions earlier on about aew and the entire confrontation between cm punk ace steel the elite and all of that apparently there's more to the story now we've also learned at this point and I'm sure everybody's already read up on it, but I just want to k- kind of keep the show up to date as well. So I'm editing this in right here. Apparently it was the Young Bucks who kicked in the door, that quote unquote kicked in the door to CM Punk's locker room. Because remember during his press conference, CM Punk said, if you got a problem with me, I'll walk up and down the hallways and you say shit to my face. Well, he didn't do that. He went to his locker room, locked his locker room door, and then came the confrontation. The Bucks and a reportedly Kenny Omega were banging on the door, asking him to open the door. He was not responding, so they, I guess, busted the door in from from the reports anyway. 
to confront CM Punk. That's when the uh, altercation escalated into physicality. CM Punk reportedly had uh, punched Matt Jackson once, at least once. Some people are reporting multiple times. I've even heard a couple people say there's no confirmation that any punches actually connected. However, apparently also in the locker room was Ace Steel's wife along with CM Punk's dog, Larry, during this whole altercation as well. That may be the reason why Ace Steel ran in and, and whipped a chair at Nick Jackson's face, knocking him out cold reportedly. The entire thing is just absolutely a fiasco. Unbelievable. In a billion-dollar company, this, these things are going on. Yeah, I know it's wrestling, guys, but still, give me a break. And it's wrong. Everybody in the entire situation, if anybody's siding with CM Punk, you're a fool. If anybody's siding with the elite, you're still a fool in my book because I'm not talking about what they did necessarily as wrestlers. I'm talking about what they did as EVPs. When you're an executive vice president of a company, you can't go busting into your employee's room and get physical with your employees. There's lawsuits to be had there. It's just, I understand a lot of it's probably just the job title. A lot of it's to fill, fulfill an ego, executive vice president, but you cannot hold that title and go and attack your employees. It's just not, that's not business. I don't care what they said. That's just not business. That's not how you handle business. Now, on the other end, CM Punk, I can't say he didn't have whatever happened here coming. The guy goes out there and he shoots in a press conference. I, You know, and I've heard Cornette's version of it that, hey, the AEW guys, the All Elite guys and things of that nature, they had this coming. And Punk can do what he wants to do in his own time. I'm not against him shooting on people if he has things he wants to say. But when you're still employed by said company, you don't go and run your mouth on your bosses, essentially and think there's no ramifications coming on your end. And of course, he's sitting there doing that right next to the owner of the company, which basically belittles Tony Khan, whether that was Punk's intention or not. So this whole entire thing has just been a complete mess, obviously. But now, you know, as of today, they're reporting more people were involved in the fight, more people were involved in the altercation. And according to Sports Illustrated and Justin Barrasso, Matt Jackson and Nick Jackson, as well as Kenny Omega, the elite, they have all been suspended as of right now, as listen to these names, as have Christopher Daniels, Pat Buck, who also is another agent, Michael Nakazawa, and Brandon Cutler have also all been suspended following their roles in the backstage melee. That's a lot more names than we've heard in the past. We knew initially it was CM Punk, Ace Steel, the Young Bucks, and Kenny Omega. As of this morning, I did hear Christopher Daniels' name thrown into the mix, but now Pat Buck, Nakazawa, Brandon Cutler all being involved clearly in some way, shape, or form, even if they were just standing there allowing it to happen, all of them suspended, while several sources in Sports Illustrated also reporting that AEW champion CM Punk, who instigated the fight with his comments during the scrum, and his friend and trainer Ace Steel will either be included in those suspensions or fired from the company altogether. Their fates will be reportedly determined by the end of today. Now I'm recording the show today. So unfortunately I don't have their fates here on this episode. I'll, I'll touch on it maybe on the next episode very briefly before we get back into WWF 1987. You know, and I hate to say this, I was a CM Punk fan in the WWE, but everything everyone has said, even though I was like, yeah, I didn't really buy into a lot of it. It's come out here in AEW. It's proof. It's anywhere he goes. This is the situation. I don't know that he helped the company as much as a lot of people have have said that he has. I, I know the ratings have went up slightly. I understand that they, they had a million-dollar gate. I don't know if that was all CM Punk, but I'm sure his name certainly added a lot of value to the show. So I can see where, yeah, he has made them some money, 
in the short term here in AEW, but is he really worth the headache? He's clearly going to do what he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. He's walking all over the owner of the company because he knows he can get away with it. And that's a form of bullying. Is he sitting there belittling Tony Khan and calling him names? No, but he's taking advantage of Tony Khan because he knows he can. He would never sit next to Vince McMahon and try this shit. So I feel all of these guys are in the wrong. The Young Bucks, had they not been EVPs, I don't know that they even deserve a suspension in this situation. However, being EVPs, Kenny Omega included, I see why those guys are suspended. I also see why they had to suspend some of the other guys involved, like Christopher Daniels, Pat Buck, and Agent. All of these people suspended. I don't believe Ace Steel belongs in the company after this situation. I get it a little more now. His wife was in the room when this was going on. Maybe he, I could see how that would elevate someone's adrenaline, how somebody could get really heated and do some things maybe they wouldn't normally do. I don't know. I wasn't in the locker room, so I can't at this point crap on what Ace Steel did now that I know that his wife was in the room. But at the same time, all of this was absolutely unnecessary. The fact that this escalated into anything physical is just absolutely ridiculous as well. CM Punk is just too old and too, well, I, I would have presumed to have been too wise to have gotten involved in such a skirmish. But at this point, it just seems like he really doesn't care. Everything he said when he got to the company last year, it seems like he's going back on it now, at least in that press conference, referring to working with a bunch of children, being booked to work against a bunch of pricks. Clearly, CM Punk is unhappy and he has no problem telling everybody right in front of the owner of the company. That's something you should be taking Tony Khan aside and saying, hey, let's discuss this. And I'm not and and I'm sure Punk has already told Khan some of these things. I I mean, knowing how CM Punk operates, I'm sure he's already had these conversations with Tony Khan now why he chose to do it in the press conference as well. I don't know, but I do know this. Uh, Everybody that's suspended, okay, I get it. It'll be interesting to see how long some of these guys are suspended for. It'll be interesting to see what happens with Omega and the Jacksons as far as being EVPs and things like that. Will they be looking to leave the company if they don't get to keep everything they have? Also, on the other end, I can see CM Punk really not caring whether he stays or goes, but then again, he's working with a billionaire, a billion-dollar company. We saw what happened when he tried to stand up to Vince McMahon Keeping it real went very wrong for CM Punk. He had to pay out a lot of money there. And the cons, they have more money than Vince. So if Punk thinks he's going to screw around on a billion-dollar company and just take off, I'm sure there's going to be lots of lawsuits filed there. And Punk probably doesn't want that situation. So maybe he does want to iron things out as best as a CM Punk can in order to smooth things over and maybe, maybe stick around with the company. But I wouldn't be surprised by the time you listen to this if CM Punk is released from the company altogether. In fact, if it was my call in this whole situation, I would have no option but to to release CM Punk. I think that would be the right call from my perspective. Again, I wasn't in the locker room, but just for what he did in that press conference, I absolutely disagree with that. That's terrible business. Terrible business from an employee and an employee that absolutely knows better. So what will happen to Punk and Ace Steel? Ace Steel means absolutely nothing to me. I don't know a whole lot about the guy. I know he did some jobs throughout WWE. I know he did a little bit of Ring of Honor. I know he's done a lot of indie things. But but at the end of the day, who is Ace Steel? What is he going to do for AEW in the long term? And throwing, whipping chairs, knocking people out. We don't need that here. And really, is he really going to come back to work in a month, two months, three months down the line? And the locker room is going to look at him like, like he's a great guy. Are they going to listen to him? Uh, is he going to only be able to work as an agent under certain matches and certain guys that'll still deal with him? So I wouldn't be surprised by the end of the day if there's a mutual split between CM Punk and the AEW promotion, or if Punk is outright just released from the company, which may have been what he was going for all along. Who really knows? 
Either way, I do apologize for interrupting the show with even more on the current product, AEW, and the fallout of all of this nonsense from over the weekend, but I felt it was still timely and it was something I needed to do since I addressed it earlier in the show, and by the time this comes out, all this other news has now come out, so I felt it was right to edit this into the show, and I appreciate you guys for continuing to listen to this Ask Us Anything episode, episode 62 of The Grenade. We now resume our regularly scheduled programming. This has been Ray Russell with the news. Hey guys, and welcome back to the grenade on the other side of a nice commercial break. And as I said before, we headed into the break. We have two non-wrestling-related questions sent in this time around, and I wanted to get to those next. And first up, it's Heather McLean of Fayetteville, North Carolina. She asks, what is the last television show you binge-watched and shows you want to binge in the future? Well, okay, that's an interesting question. I think maybe somebody asked me a similar question to this on our last Ask Us Anything episode, but things have changed a lot since then, so I'll answer it anyway. And thank you, Heather, for writing in. As much as I love the wrestling questions, I always love these questions, too, because people are starting to pick your brain. They want to know who you are beyond just a wrestling historian. And so to answer your question, I've, I've recently binge-watched a lot of things, some by force and some by my own choice. And what I mean is usually I'm in the room doing other things, and when I'm in the room, my children have TV on. And when the TV's on, I can't help but listen to it, watch it, whatever the case may be. And uh, most recently, my, my kids have uh, binge-watched Roseanne as well as Full House. In fact, they've binge-watched Full House so many times, I know everything they're going to say before they say it. I'm not bragging about that. That's just a fact. Also, my wife recently, we went through the first nine seasons of Impractical Jokers as the new 10th season has been out. We've been watching that as well. We binge-watched a lot of Law & Order SVU since it's off for the summer. There hasn't been a whole lot of good new programming, in my opinion, anyway, over this summer. So we've done some binge watching when we've had the opportunity. We've also been watching a bunch of House, which I haven't watched really since the original run. I went back and binge watched House for a couple of weeks there, made it to the last season. I don't think I, I didn't finish the last season yet. So I do need to go back and finish House back off. Hugh Laurie, just tremendous in that character role. I finished up Matlock with Andy Griffith, Matlock, a few months ago. I know the Eye of Gibson will love to hear that. And right now, I'm currently working on trying to finish up Give Me a Break with Nell Carter and Quantum Leap as well. These are shows that I, I've started to watch and I've kind of slown off. I've tapered off on it. But I do plan to go back and finish watching them. Give Me a Break specifically. It was something I hadn't seen in decades. I remember growing up watching it as a kid. So I went back and watched it. I still got about a season, season and a half to go there. Quantum Leap, I just started. It's been added to the Peacock as of August. I just finished up the first season of Quantum Leap. Looking forward to continuing to watch that show as the new version, the reboot of Quantum Leap will be coming out this fall. And speaking of reboots, uh, I'm a big fan of Walker, Texas Ranger. I mean, the original Walker, Texas Ranger with Chuck Norris. And there's a new version, a reboot of Walker, who just happens to be a Texas Ranger, more of a dramatic show with maybe 60 seconds of fighting throughout the episodes. And usually Walker, the character of Walker, isn't even the one involved in most of the fighting and arresting. So it's a very different show, but I've been forcing myself to watch it in honor of the original show, even though it has very little to do 
with the original show. It just happens to be a guy named Walker, Cordell Walker, who just happens to be a Texas Ranger. They don't really focus a whole lot on that aspect. It's more about his family and, and things like that. So, yeah, I've been working my way through that new Walker series. I'll try to give the new Quantum Leap a try as well when that comes out. I believe I'm somewhere in the early part of season two of Walker. Now, as far as shows I want to binge watch, well, I'm old school, guys. I don't watch a whole lot of new TV programming. So I'd love to go back and uh, binge watch shows like In the Heat of the Night with Carol O'Connor, The Fall Guy with Lee Majors. God, I love The Fall Guy because it was part of the Fox package during the TV on Saturdays and Sundays when I was growing up. They would air Superstars and then two hours of Fall Guy. And then on Sunday, they would air Wrestling Challenge and then an hour or two more of The Fall Guys. So when wrestling went off every Saturday and Sunday, The Fall Guy came on. So I just happened to get into it as a kid because of that reason. And I'm just, I'd love to go back and check that out again really soon. And of course, because I'm watching the new version of Walker, I'd like to go back and binge watch the original Walker, Texas Ranger. And I'm still trying to get my hands on the old sitcom, Just the Ten of Us from the late 80s, a spinoff of Growing Pains. I haven't seen that in forever. I happen to have eight kids. The guy from Just the Ten of Us, Bill Kirkenbauer or whatever his name was, he had eight kids on his show, Just the Ten of Us. It works. It it makes sense. And I enjoyed it as a kid. I'd love to go back and, and check that show out again, see if it still lives up to the hype after all these years. Also looking for early seasons of American Gladiators. I'm going to go back and binge watch that as well. And I know that Pluto has an American Gladiators channel, and they do have some of the early seasons on there, but they're missing a couple of them, and one in particular that I absolutely want to relive, and that's the season with Rico Constantino, the future Rico in the WWF, WWE. Before that, he was a contestant, not a gladiator, on American Gladiators, went all the way to the finals, Rico Constantino. And it's uh, great memories because I grew up on American Gladiators as a kid, me and my cousins and my brother. And I remember that season vividly. We got so behind Rico Constantino. We We just loved the guy and we wanted him to win that season. So his name stuck with me. It just rolls off your tongue, Rico Constantino. So it rolled, it stuck in my mind for many, many years. So when Rico came to the WWF or to developmental, I looked up his name and I said, get the fuck out of here. You gotta be shitting me. This is the guy that was on American gladiators when we were kids. So it's just a cool memory to me. And I just love to go back and check out the old American gladiators as well on my time, not on Pluto's time. So thank you for that fun question, Heather. As we roll on, Tom DeBlazio of Williamstown, New Jersey asks, my condolences and thoughts to you and your family. Well, thank you, Tom. We really appreciate that. I've heard you reference fantasy football in the past on your shows. Any fantasy football for you this year? What do your teams look like? Any last minute advice? Well, Tom, if this was pre-COVID, I could give you hours of advice. In fact, I could do a whole show, a daily show on fantasy football. But uh, since the COVID timeframe, like I dipped out completely uh, in 2020 during COVID. I just didn't trust. I didn't want the headaches of guys not being able to participate due to COVID any random weeks. Also, it turned out that there was a lot of injuries that year, a lot blamed on the lack of training heading into the season. So it worked out in the long run for me. I uh, stepped away from fantasy football in 2020 and it seemed to be a wise call. I managed to dodge a lot of headaches while I began recording the Wrestling Memory Grenade show, so it all worked out all the way around. Last year, I did participate in one league. Now, I used to be in my brother's league for at least, I'd say, a dozen years strong. I had my own league for 10 years. It's a 12-team league. And other than one or two guys switching out every year, 
we had about 10 solid guys every year in that league that would just come back every year. So it was really a, a great time, great camaraderie, no shenanigans going on, anything like that. So pre-2020, this question, my God, you would have you would have had me here for a very long time, but I can answer this pretty quickly here this week on the grenade. And the answer is I am doing one fantasy football league this year. I joined it last minute. It involves my brother, uh, one of my sons who's just heavily into sports. I have a couple of sons who are way, way into sports. But my 14-year-old, he studies sports like I study professional wrestling. So uh, he he was determined to get into a league. So my brother, when he was up here visiting for my grandmother's funeral, he said, hey, let's let's get together a league. And that's what we did, a 10-team league. It's me, my brother, one of my sons, and a few other people. And that's the league we're doing this year. It was an auction draft. In fact, we just concluded it a couple days ago. I'm pretty happy with my team. I didn't do too bad for a guy who did zero research this year. And I used to do a lot of research going in. Even if it was only two or three days before the draft, I would do some hardcore research. I knew who was hurt, who might be hurt, who moved to what team, who the RB1, the RB2, the wide receiver one, the slot receiver. I knew all of these things. Heading into a draft this year, I knew nothing. I opened up the draft and away we went. Kind of went off past experience, and I, I thought I did a pretty good job by the end of it. Not the greatest running back situation, but you'll have that. Again, it was an auction draft, and my starters look like this. Quarterback, Josh Allen, Buffalo Bills. Wide receivers, Cooper Cup, T. Higgins, and in the flex spot right now, I have Amari Cooper and the Cleveland Browns. Tight end, Mark Andrews of the Ravens. Now the running back situation, a little more, eh, it is what it is, but you can't complain with uh, Nick Chubb is one of your running backs, Cleveland Browns as well, and Damian Pierce, who is the starting running back, I do believe, of Houston. Now I had to take him pretty late in the auction draft. I was running low on money, and uh, that wound up being my RB2, but I figured of the guys that were left, he has the most upside given the fact that he should be on the field more often than not. So those are my starters, and, and then down on the bench, I'm looking at guys like Robert Woods. Uh, Valdez Scantling in Kansas City, Naheem Hines, James Cook, a running back out of Buffalo. Jarvis Landry went pretty late in the draft, so we'll see what he does sitting on my bench. And then we got some backups down here. Alexander Madison, should Cook go out, which he has in the past. In Minnesota, Madison right away should be the starter. So we're going to hold on to him for the short term anyway, as well as Darrell Henderson out of the Rams. And that's my bench. Also, for the time being, and for no particular reason, my defense is the Dallas Cowboys. They seem to be the best of the what was left by the time I got to that round. And Cade York, rookie Cade York, taken in the fourth round. And the only reason, the sole reason I picked Cade York was because he kicked a 70-yard field goal in the preseason. So I know he's got some leg on him. So now he just needs to prove he has continuous accuracy with that leg. And if he does, this should pay out. If he doesn't, Hey, kickers are a dime a dozen on the waiver wire, right? So that's my team. Josh Allen, Nick Chubb, and Damian Pierce at my running backs. Cooper Cup, T. Higgins, Amari Cooper at wide receiver and flex. Mark Andrews at the tight end. So not a bad situation. I went to ratemyteam.com, and, and you take it for what it's worth. It's like a psychic network, entertainment purposes only. But out of the 10 teams, they ranked me second best in the draft. So I think I did a pretty damn good job for somebody who did zero research walking in. Do I have any advice for you? Yes. Don't overspend on a quarterback if you're doing an auction draft. That's my only advice I can give you right now. I haven't done any research, so I can't give you any real advice. And I apologize for that. Again, any other year, we'd be sitting here forever. But all I can tell you is don't overspend on a quarterback. And that'll wrap it up 
for non-wrestling related questions. So it's off to our final piece here this week on the Wrestling Memory Grenade, and that is random wrestling questions. And there's a lot of fun ones here. In fact, several territory-based wrestling questions, which I'm a big fan of, as you guys already know. So we're going to get right into things. David C. from Berea, Ohio. Not Berea, Ohio, as you might hear on TV, on the ID channel, things like that. People wanting to sound uppity and make it sound fancy. No, it's pronounced Berea, Ohio, and it's right around the corner from me, actually. Nevertheless, David C. writes, tell me about the famous Cleveland riot involving Ox Baker and I believe Ernie Ladd. Well, you are correct, David. There was a Cleveland riot. In fact, they call it the most famous wrestling riot of all time. It's certainly the most famous one that exists on film. It's still out there, David. And for anybody else interested, you can go to YouTube. There's two different versions. It appears maybe from the same camera, but two different versions of the famous or the infamous Cleveland riot involving, you got the names right, Ox Baker and Ernie Ladd, but there was a very important third man involved in this riot. Ox Baker always given the big credit here. Ernie Ladd always mentioned, but a lot of times this name is left out, which blows my mind. The third member, many would argue, was the reason for the riot, that name being Johnny Powers. And for those of you who don't know who Johnny Powers is, he worked heavily in the Northern Territories. He worked the West Coast. He did some work over in Japan. He's also the man that took over the IWA from Eddie Einhorn. Remember, Einhorn tried to go national with the IWA. Well, after just a few short months, Einhorn backed out, and Johnny Powers took over the company. Johnny Powers also took over the NWF from Pedro Martinez, who ran the Buffalo-Pittsburgh-Cleveland Territory. And once Powers took over that Buffalo-Cleveland Territory, most of it migrated to the Cleveland-Ohio area, to the point where if you've ever heard the stories of how over the junkyard dog was in New Orleans or how over Jerry Lawler is in Memphis. Now this is on a smaller scale and it's certainly on a much shorter scale than like a Jerry Lawler in Memphis. But Johnny Powers was at one time in the late sixties, early seventies, he was the Hulk Hogan of the Cleveland territory. Now you might be saying the Cleveland territory. Yes. Cleveland had its own territory, but it all came from Cleveland was at times part of the Sheik's big time wrestling Detroit territory. It was also part of Pedro Martinez's NWF territory as well. Cleveland became its own entity while Johnny Powers was promoting in and around that area. In fact, Johnny Powers was so over, and you can call this an ego if you want, and yeah, I'm sure there was one involved. The name of the local wrestling show, which was recorded at WUAB Channel 43 Studios in Cleveland, the name of the wrestling show was Championship Wrestling with Johnny Powers. That's how big he was to the territory. He was their Hulk Hogan in his era. He was their Stone Cold in his era. And sadly, that territory and Johnny Powers himself have really been forgotten in time. And legendary feuds with Johnny Valentine, The Sheik, Bulldog Brower, Big Cat Ernie led so many of the big heels of the time. So that's just a little bit about Johnny Powers. And as you might imagine, much like Jerry Lawler in Memphis, Johnny Powers was a multiple-time champion in the NWF territory. I think he was something like a dozen times North American champion, multiple-time heavyweight champion, tag team champion. Johnny Powers had done it all. He could do no wrong in the company, but he just felt like, as the booker, as the promoter now of the NWF, he just felt like, well, I've done everything I can do as a baby face. There's, there's nothing left for me to do. And while the gates were still really good, what do I have left to do? I've already wrestled everybody repeatedly. And Johnny, in his version of the story anyway, he looks over and he sees Ernie Ladd, one of the top heels in the territory. Johnny Powers, of course, himself the top baby face. And he says, 
something's not right here because a lot of our fans in the Cleveland area are black. We have a lot of black fans in the Cleveland community. So here's a guy who was pulling 11,000 fans into the arenas back in 71, 72 in that era. He even headlined and ran the Super Bowl of Wrestling at the old Cleveland Stadium, the Browns and the Indian Stadium back in, I think that was 72, headlined that versus Johnny Valentine. What is there left for me to do, he asks himself, and he looks over and he sees Ernie Ladd, an African-American, and he says, you know what? These fans shouldn't be cheering me. They should be cheering Ernie Ladd. They should be getting behind one of their own, and that's kind of what worked with the Junkyard Donk down in New Orleans. So Johnny Powers comes up with this convoluted idea Unbelievable, a top baby face decides, I'm just going to, I'm going to, you know what? I'm turning heel. And there's nobody for him to fact check this with, hey, are you sure you want to do this? Because Johnny is not only the booker, he's also the promoter. He's going to turn heel. And it's, it's, a, it's actually a double turn. Everybody talks about WrestleMania 13, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Brett the Hitman Hart. Double turns were happening long before WrestleMania 13, guys, because we can go all the way back at least here to 1973 or 72, 73, something like that. Johnny Powers and this Cleveland riot, many would argue it was Johnny Powers who incited, who caused the riot, not Ox Baker and the half a dozen heart punches he laid on Ernie Ladd. And I'll get to that right now. It was in a match between Johnny Powers and Ernie Ladd. Ernie Ladd, the heel, Johnny Powers, the top babyface. It was main event. And Johnny Powers locks in his legendary power lock, the figure four leg lock, which he called the power lock. But Ernie Ladd, those big long legs, somehow manages to turn the hold over. The heel has reversed the figure four right there in the Cleveland arena. And Johnny Powers appears to be in severe pain and in severe trouble when what should happen? Out of nowhere, Ox Baker hits the ring. Ox Baker, another heel who sometimes aligned himself with Ernie Ladd. Instead of helping Ladd out, Ox Baker instead attacks the big cat, blasting Ladd in the back of the head, forcing him to release the figure four, the reverse figure four on Johnny Powers, resulting in disqualification, but it did it in there. Because as things became obvious, I love being able to use this word in the world of wrestling. Johnny Powers was in cahoots with Ox Baker. And almost immediately, the crowd realized what was happening. They began booing the attack on this heel Ernie Ladd as Ox Baker just kept laying in heart punch after heart punch after heart punch. And the crowd became more and more riotous as Ox Baker did this. But it was all because of the top baby face, the Hulk Hogan of his era and in his territory. Johnny Powers just turned heel right before their eyes without any provocation, without any instance of foreshadowing. Nobody saw it coming. Powers randomly, their hero for years now, just turned heel before their eyes and the riot begins. Powers and Baker stomp around the ring. Baker repeatedly laying into Ladd before they realize that we have a problem on our hands as the crowd begins getting closer and closer to the ring. Powers finally makes a move. He hits the apron. And had he been a second slower, he may not have made it out of the arena. You can go watch the footage yourself. This is real, and it's live, pal. Believe me, it's a scary sight. It appears there's a fan up on the steps as Powers is trying to make his way down. He escapes that fan, hurdles the barrier around ringside as the fans lay chase to him, just feet behind Johnny Powers as he runs for his life. He jumps up and lands feet first on top of a second barrier, which blocks the fans from entering the backstage area. Powers then jumps into the backstage area, never to be seen again that night, as a multitude of fans swarm up to the barrier. And it's been reported, and I've done a lot of reading on this in my life because I always found this fascinating, 
that the riot police, and rightfully so, the riot police, the riot squad, were called to the arena that night and refused to enter because of the amount of the people inside the building. They were going absolutely insane. In fact, the local security hired by the promotion even refused to get involved, and I can't really blame them if you watch this. It's a scary sight. Ox Baker gets his head split open from a chair. It's the original Night at Rain chairs, by the way. I should point out if you go back and watch this video now, it's nothing like ECW and Public Enemy and Cactus Jack, Terry Funk, but there are multiple chairs thrown into the ring. The fans are absolutely in disgust as this happens. One of them happens to hit Ox Baker in the top of the head, cutting him open, and both men just escape, barely escape with their lives. And it feels like a scene out of a movie, but when you put, when you put it in context and realize this was real, you realize Johnny Powers escaped by the skin of his teeth. And that was the Cleveland Riot. Johnny Powers' heel turn. Ernie Ladd's babyface turn. Great times were the territory days. So I hope that adds a little context to the video. I hope you go back and check out the video on YouTube. Again, there's a couple versions out there. They're both easy to follow. And we move on to Carl Lowther, Waretown, New Jersey. He says, I've heard you talk about having recordings of Radio WWF. Do you have any specific memories, gags, or one-liners you remember from the program? I used to listen to the program out of New York at the time and was hoping maybe you could jog some old memories for me. Oh, Carl, I love it when anybody brings up Radio WWF. That was a fun time in my life. It only went about eight months of my life, but it's a fun time. I remember it like it lasted years. And, and I mean that in a good way. It was a really good time. Unfortunately, I got Radio WWF basically immediately after Jim Ross's departure, so I never got to hear Jim Ross in the serious sports version of Radio WWF with all the shoot interviews and things of that nature. However, what transpired immediately after Jim Ross left the show, now that was a fun time, hosted mostly by Johnny Polo and Stan Lane. The rails were more often than not off. After Jim Ross's departure, Radio WWF changed its opening to introduce Vince McMahon as the new host. But I got to tell you, I don't remember Vince hosting more than two or three times. In fact, it was like a running gag every week. Vince McMahon is not here this week. Uh, you just knew that was coming because the, the last uh, part of the, the opening was, and your host, and now your host, Vince McMahon. And then they would have to announce Vince is not here because they weren't going to spend any time to go back and edit a, a new intro for radio WWF, because why would they? And some weeks we did get Howard Finkel in there. He felt like their babysitter at times, but a lot of the time it was just Stanley and Johnny Polo running the show there. If you want to call it that Polo or a Raven has went on to state in later years that the minute he knew he was taking over Radio WWF, the one thing he vowed was he would never take anything on the show seriously. And I think he really held true to that word. Lots of comedy, uh, lots of bits, lots of ad-libbing as well by Johnny Polo, leading to a lot of laughter by Stan Lane. And, uh, and I wouldn't be able to confirm this, but I'd say these guys were high uh, many of the times they hosted this show, or at least it certainly came off that way. But there's a lot of great memories. In fact, I've went back and found a lot of my old audio cassettes. I'm transferring those over to digital. I'm hoping to put out a little mix of just some of my favorite segments and things in the future. There was just a lot of fun things that, that popped up on Radio WWF. You never knew what you were going to get week to week. They would usually have a couple of guest call-ins. Alfred Hayes called in every week with a, a new comedy bit. Alfred's humor was so bad. It was awesome. I loved it at the time, and I love it now today. I remember all three Valiant Brothers calling in, which was really cool. I mean, uh, reuniting of the Valiant Brothers, Jimmy, Johnny, and Jerry, all three of them on the show at the same time, talking with each other, reminiscing and, and discussing things that backstage things, and they weren't breaking kayfabe, but just backstage things that normally wouldn't be addressed on a, a WWF program, certainly not back then. 
Freddie Blassie called in, ripped Hulk Hogan a good one once. Uh, there, there was a Harvey Whippleman would call in and do some really great comedy as well. And there was actually a week where Harvey Whippleman called in at the same time. Bret Hart, who was champion at the time, uh, called in as well. So they were both on the line at the same time. And Harvey's sitting there egging Bret on, asking him to uh, put the title line against real challengers like Quang and Well Done. And it just it made me laugh. Johnny Polo was dying in laughter at the uh, mere thought uh, of those guys being contenders. And it was just a really good time in my life to uh, two hours every Saturday night, kept me out of trouble. Listen to the old radio WWF programming every once in a while, getting on the phone and speaking with them myself. I remember I got to speak with uh, president Jack Tunney. That was so cool at the time before uh, Tunney resigned every week. We had the old trivia out. Think the fink people would call in. They would do about 10 calls where you would call and ask the fink a question and try to outthink him. Of course, eventually they would add that to their WWF on America online which is very much like one of these old trivia games you used to play in the restaurants back in that era. You get the little hints to eliminate answers, and you, you try to pick the correct answer as fast as you could to get the most points and things like that. It was a really good time on AOL way back in the late 90s as well. But yeah, I used to outthink the Fink. I have a few outthink the Fink shirts laying around. My brother did it himself a few times. In fact, when Radio WWF shut down, they sent my brother an extra shirt because they were trying to get rid of him, and they went through some addresses, and then he just randomly one day... Received an out or an extra out think the Fink shirt. Meanwhile, they jipped me one of mine because they owed me one from one of the shows and they, they never sent it to me. So I told my brother, I said, that's not fair. They sent you an extra one and they, they ripped me off one. But it, it was just good times. It is what it is. I enjoyed being able to listen to the Fink and everybody a little out of character, at least a little more loose with their characters and just lots of jokes, lots and lots of jokes. In fact, there was a time also when uh, the boys were overseas, or at least some of them were over touring. I, I believe it was over in England or, or Europe somewhere. And uh, they decide they're going to call uh, Rene Goulet in the middle of the night. Now, this would have been, what time I say, 9 o'clock Eastern. So it was 2, 3 a.m. in the morning over wherever Rene Goulet was. And they call him and wake him up in his hotel room. But Johnny Polo does all of this live on air. And so when he calls, Rene Goulet checks into the hotel under his real name which is Robert Bertard, okay? So Johnny Polo calls over there and calls the hotel and asks to speak to Robert Bertard live on Radio WWF. So now I'm going, why the fuck did he call him that if he's calling Rene Goulet? I'm a a young teen Mark, okay? And Johnny Polo explains on the air in in very smart fashion. He goes, Robert Bernard is Rene Goulet's alias. Rene Goulet's his real name. Robert Bertard is his, his fake name while he's staying in hotels. Oh, okay. Because we don't want to believe that our wrestlers have fake names, right? So really cool cover up there by Johnny Polo. And they do wake him up and he sounds half asleep. And that was a good one. So just lots of good stuff on Radio WWF. And I look forward to getting a little bit of that out for everyone. In fact, one of my cousins who really I I don't speak to a whole lot, she texted me a few months ago, two, three months ago. And she just happened to ask me, she said, hey, do you still have those old Radio WWF tapes? So that kind of came out of nowhere. I was really shocked. So yes, I do. And uh, I'm still finding more and more. But I look forward to putting some of that out, and I look forward to listening to all of it myself. Thanks for the question, and thanks for putting a smile on my face with a Radio WWF question. I know you made my brother's day as well. Oliver Askell of Greystead, Denmark. Greetings from Denmark. Sorry to hear about your recent family tragedies. I hope you find comfort with your family. Thank you, Oliver. My question is, can you explain to me in simple terms the reason the Moondogs changed wrestlers during their tag team title run in the WWF. I appreciate you asking me the question. Obviously, you can probably find this out online fairly easily, but uh, I do appreciate the question, Oliver. And I appreciate you listening to the show. 
So the deal with the Moondogs, it was is actually pretty simple, to be honest with you. The original Moondog team in the WWF was Moondog King and Moondog Rex. Now, Moondog Rex had actually come in singles as Moondog Hawkins for a taping, but they quickly pivoted and made them into a tag team. They also went from singlets to wearing those ripped-up jeans that they became accustomed to wearing throughout the 1980s and beyond. But the original Moondog tag team, now I'm not talking about Moondog Main, I'm talking about Moondog Rex, Moondog King, in the early 80s, won the WWF tag team titles. Now, Rex, Randy Colley, who we just talked about on the recent WWF 1987, was the original Smash. Well, Colley was also Moondog Rex, and he stuck with the team throughout its entire WWF run. Now, however, Moondog King, my personal favorite of all three Moondogs, Moondog King, just based on his look, I don't know what a Moondog is, but he looked like one was a a wrestler by the name of Sailor White. He wrestled as Sailor White up in Canada before he got the Moondog King gimmick down here in the United States. And what happened was, and the story goes, at some point, King went back to his native Canada, and when he went back to try to cross the border into the United States back to the WWF, he wasn't permitted back into the States. Now, I'd have to go back and look and see the actual reason why, but clearly there was an issue there where he couldn't cross the border. I don't know. I, I From what I, I recall, and I could be wrong, It may have been drug-related issues, but nevertheless, Sailor White Moondog King wasn't allowed to return to the United States. He couldn't wrestle for the WWF anymore, so they had to create a new Moondog, and fast, because they were the champions. So they bring in Larry Latham from Memphis. Latham had been teaming with the Honky Tonk Man, of all people, Wayne Ferris, as the Blonde Bombers down there in the late 70s, early 80s Memphis. He put on a little weight, grew a bigger beard. And all of a sudden, Moondog Spot was born. Spotty, as Gorilla Monsoon affectionately called him. So Rex and Spot replaced Rex and King. And that was, that was the entire reason. Moondog King couldn't return back to the States in order to defend the title. So they had to come up with a new Moondog. And that's how the pup of the litter, Spotty, was born. So I hope that answered your question there. Jeff Walls, Council Bluffs, Iowa says, I spent most of the 70s and the 80s on the West Coast and grew up on Portland Wrestling. Right on. Have you had the opportunity to watch much of this territory? I was wondering your thoughts on Portland as a regional promotion. Do you like it? Your thoughts on the style, your favorite angles, or wrestlers from Portland? Wow, that's a lot to get into. First of all, Jeff, I've watched tons of Portland Wrestling. Love the Pacific Northwest Wrestling Territory. It is its own entity, as are a lot of different territories. They have their own style, their own feel, and you really just needed those top guys to draw in Portland. You really just needed those guys to cut those promos on TV in between the two out of three fall matches and things like that. The Roddy Piper era there was unbelievable. Piper did things that you just absolutely couldn't get away with today, from kicking women to lighting things on fire in a small bowling alley turned into an arena. Roddy Piper's just wild, out of control. I loved his run there, both as a heel and as a babyface. Some of the rare earlier stuff as well from the 70s, a lot of great stuff there. From the late 70s specifically, I enjoy all of that. Buddy Rose was the man there as, as far as heels go. Now, there were a lot of heels I grew up on that I loved. I loved Rick Martell. I loved Shawn Michaels when he was a heel. I loved Mr. Perfect. I loved a lot of heels that, you know, it wasn't cool to like if you were just a big babyface guy. So I wasn't one of those guys that just followed the baby faces. However, I can tell you that had I grew up on the West Coast, had I grew up in, in Portland and, and watched Buddy Rose, I would have never liked him. He was that good of a heel. He did his job right. He, was, he deserved to be the top guy there. I can see how he drew money in the Portland territory based on the promos alone. Buddy Rose was a great bumper. 
Unfortunately, he gained a lot of weight over the 80s and still was able to put on some really great matches. But Buddy Rose in Portland was a thing of beauty and a, a tremendous heel there. Love the stuff I've seen from the 70s. Love the stuff I've seen from the early to mid 80s. Unfortunately, yeah, Portland went on a decline from that point forward, though they always seemed to have something decent going on. Uh, not not bad booking. I always thought it was funny. Don Owen insisted that he needed to be the ring announcer. Really wasn't cut out for that gig, but it, he certainly had his own personality, that's for sure. Frank Bonama, the announcer prior to Don Cost. My God, Frank Bonama is an unsung hero of wrestling announcers. Very underrated. Never mentioned, unfortunately, because it was the Portland Territory. I love Bonama's stuff. Don Koss was, yeah, he was just your typical wrestling announcer. I didn't really have any feelings about him one way or the other. So Bonham, although I loved him before he had the heart attack, passed away. I've seen that episode where they announced his passing. It's very sad. And how could you talk about Portland wrestling without bringing up Tom Peterson? You know, any other time, I I don't mind skipping commercials. But man, you give me a Tom Peterson commercial any day, and I'm I'm not touching my controller. So... Do I have I seen a lot of Portland? I've seen a ton of Portland, and do I love the territory? I love every territory. I try to find something good in every territory, no matter uh, how big or small they were. And Portland is uh, no different. I mean, look at the names that came through there: Jesse Ventura and the Iron Sheik, Bull Ramos. Like I said, Buddy Rose and Roddy Piper, the Sheepherders, Rick Martel, Superfly Snuka in his prime. But the names they just go on and on and on. Really good stuff, and I, you know th- this makes me want to go check out some more Portland, and uh, I think I will. I think I'm going to go watch me some Portland wrestling later this week, so I appreciate the write-in, Jeff, and I love Portland wrestling. Moving on, Rod the Bod, San Jose, California, asks me, what do you know about a wrestler that worked in the early or mid-80s under the gimmick, I believe, the Mega Maharishi Sorry for My Spelling? Well, first of all, Rod, I believe you spelt Maharishi correctly. So I applaud you there. But believe it or not, the Mega Maharishi was just a, a short, tenured gimmick in the Portland Territory. And he was uh, far more well-known under various other names in, in other territories. In fact, he had a short stint. In fact, I believe just a one or two TV taping stint in the WWF in the early 80s, around 81, 82, something like that. He was uh, re- referred to as the Polish Prince in that WWF run, if you want to call it that. He was Derek Draper down in the Florida Territory at one point. Of course, as you mentioned, he was the Mega Maharishi. He had several successful runs, specifically in Portland, but also in other territories, as Ed Wiskowski. Now, that name may ring a bell with a lot more of you, and maybe now a lot more of you realize who we're talking about here. And the guy we're talking about here, unfortunately, is best known as the uh, racist South African character of Colonel De Beers in the AWA. Yes, the Mega Maharishi, the, the peaceful man, uh, also went on to become Colonel De Beers not too long after that, in fact. And of course, we know everything that De Beers did there in the AWA, and we won't get into all of that here, but yes, uh, the Mega Maharishi, Derek Draper, the Polish Prince, Ed Wiskowski, Colonel De Beers, call him whenever you want. We're talking all about the same guy. Rod, I hope that answered your question. I hope maybe you remember Ed Wiskowski in that territory, if you remember the Mega Maharishi. I know the, he underwent a a major change in look, grew his hair out, grew a big beard as the Maharishi. But uh, he and Ed Wiskowski are one and the same. We move on to Dale Green, South Charleston, West Virginia. He says, I was watching WWE Clash of the Castle and saw a real blast from the past. The exotic Adrian Street and valet Miss Linda at ringside. I thought it was cool of Triple H and company to pay tribute to Street 
who I thought was underrated and not talked about nearly enough. Do you have any thoughts or memories on the exotic Adrian Street? Wow. What an awesome name to bring up here. Adrian Street was one of the coolest characters, one of the coolest looking characters, one of the best promos, and he could stretch you in that ring as well. Adrian Street was the total package to be working here in the United States. I think Street's only issue was he was kind of on the short side, so he never really got to make it in the World Wrestling Federation. But name any other territory, and Adrian Street probably went through that territory at one point or another. Of course, he came over, he worked Memphis, went down to Florida, worked there until he pissed Dusty Rhodes off, came through Mid-South and Bill Watts. We saw him in Crockett feuding with and aligning himself with the boogie-woogie man Jimmy Valiant. What a duo that is. But Adrian Street, he really got around, of course, with his wife and valet, Miss Linda. For those of you who don't know a lot about Adrian Street, go Google his name, go YouTube his name. Whether he's working down in Southeastern and Alabama, wherever the case may be, Adrian Street was always such a talented performer inside the ring and on the microphone. And again, I have to go back to one of the coolest looking characters I've ever seen. In fact, one of my sons was watching Clash of the Castle. I believe they flashed some pictures of what Adrian Street looked like during his heyday. And I saw my, my son's eyes light up like, wow, who is that? What was that? What was that all about? And I just looked at him and I said, he was the shit. And I didn't get to see a lot of Adrian Street growing up, unfortunately. He really wasn't on any of the programs that I watched when I watched those programs. And he certainly never, unfortunately, he never made it to the WWF, which would, which is just unfortunate because my God, what a, what a talent. In fact, it was uh, when they tried to do the gimmick with, uh, or was it Rico and Jackie? Get it? Whatever the, whatever the, the, the situation was, uh, whenever they, they tried to recreate the exotic Adrian Street gimmick with Miss Jackie instead of Miss Linda, they went down and spoke at length with Adrian Street about the gimmick and, and how to recreate it, reinvent it. And you can say by looking at him and listening to him that he, he could be an effeminate character, but when he got in the ring, he tore you to shreds like a bulldog. And I just absolutely love Street. In fact, some of the Adrian Street I got to catch was well past his prime. And this was a guy who started off over in World of Sport, started off over in England and Wales and, and areas like that, wrestling under a a very normal gimmick, if you want to call it a gimmick. And there's a, actually a fun picture online of Adrian Street that he took with his father, Adrian Street, dressed in all of his garb, standing next to an old-time coal miner or a, some type of miner his father was actually still mining during the picture, just covered in dirt, uh, an old school man's man, if you will, standing there working next to his son, dressed like the exotic Adrian Street. Really interesting picture. But I think that says that no matter what, he was proud of his son in an era where it probably wasn't always cool to play a character like Adrian Street. But I absolutely loved him. And I loved uh, when I was a kid and he came through Dallas for Global right at the beginning when they were bringing all of the names in. Adrian Street, one of those names, I couldn't get enough of him. He was only on TV a handful of times before he was gone, but I was just like, oh, Adrian Street, this is so cool. I could, uh, up until that point, I'd only maybe seen a couple of videos of him, and I'd, I'd seen him in Grunt, the wrestling movie, which I recommend checking out. And of course, the magazines over the years, and now I was really getting to see Adrian Street week to week. Unfortunately, it didn't last long, but it was really cool while it lasted. That was really probably the last time I saw Adrian Street on my TV, until I began collecting tapes, and I have and now I've seen tons of it. I have no specific memory of Adrian Street, but I do recommend anybody listening to this program going and checking out his work. Another one of those talents that just isn't talked about nearly enough. 
Desert Wolf Dave from Phoenix, Arizona asks, your thoughts on the Bill Watts era of WCW? Well, Dave, I hope in the future to eventually at some point here on the grenade, dissect the Bill Watts era of 92-93 WCW. But until then, I can only leave you with this. I grew up in in the era of which Bill Watts was uh, doing what he did there in WCW, and we all know the reasons for him being fired, so I'll try to steer away from that and talk more about the product itself. I think Watts meant well, but I think a lot of his stuff he was trying to do was outdated. It just wasn't going to work in the 1990s, and I think Bill Watts' mindset was very stubborn in the fact that, no, this worked for decades, and I know this works, so this is what I'm doing. And, and that was his logic, and he explained that years later in shoot interviews. On paper and in theory, I respect what Bill Watts was trying to do. It makes sense when somebody's explaining it to you. Unfortunately, when you play it out, it just didn't work. I mean, actions speak louder than words. Bill Watts did those actions, and the crowd reacted. And I guess in this instance, reactions speak louder than words. Lots of great wrestling. Don't get me wrong. Some of the best wrestling I've ever seen came out of that era of the WCW. With all of the Dangerous Alliance and Barry Windham and Dustin Rhodes, Ricky Steamboat and Sting, Brad Armstrong, Brian Pillman, the great Muda. I mean, the list is never ending of every week you were guaranteed you were going to get a good match. Didn't matter who it was. I mean, even Matt Bourne as Big Josh was, was able to go out there and just be Matt Bourne and have phenomenal TV matches there for a short period of time. So for wrestling, I loved the Bill Watts era at WCW, but unfortunately with the whole no top rope rule and some of the other things he implemented and uh, just, uh, they didn't work for me. So it has its pluses and its minuses. I would love to go back and watch it though. All right. We're uh, getting close to the end of the program. Going to try to answer a couple more questions and then we're going to be on our way out so I can get this show out in a timely manner this week. First, Tony, the tiger mask. From Springfield, Massachusetts asks, I was watching the Black Tiger versus Cobra match from Madison Square Garden recently and thought the New York City fans really bought into it. Do you know the reason Vince McMahon didn't capitalize on the junior heavyweights with guys like this? Well, I think we've learned from many years of experience after this, Tony, that no matter how over this might be with the fans, it's just not Vince's cup of tea. It's not Vince's world. He doesn't see money to be made here. And in some respects, you know, Vince McMahon thought you had to be able to cut a promo to get over. And a lot of these guys that he would have been bringing in like Takano, like the Cobra here, uh, weren't able to speak English or at least not very well. And of course that was a no, no for Vince, but, uh, but on top of that, he could have easily marketed these guys. Not only is it a completely different match on the card, but they would have made cool action figures as well. So I think Vince did drop the ball with not using these guys more, when I first saw them on what was at the best of the WWF Volume 1 or whatever it was, when I first saw these guys around 86 or so on a VHS tape, I said, oh my God, wow, what happened to these guys? Where are they now? Of course, Black Tiger being Mark Rocco, Cobra being Takano. But it opened my uh, eyes to a completely different world that I was never a part of up until that point. That match, now that I think about it, the first time I'm even realizing this, this really opened my eyes to that junior heavyweight stampede Japanese Lucha Libre-esque style because up until then I had seen nothing but regular WWF wrestling and some and some Georgia championship wrestling by the mid 80s and it, it really boggles my mind how it made it on to the best of the WWF tape but I'm glad that it did because for years I was wondered as a kid who are those guys where did they go I want to watch more of them and of course those guys became part of the revolution of what we went on to see 
from the junior heavyweights, or as the WCW called them, the, the cruiserweights, and, and now it's just commonplace in today's era. But yeah, uh, good question. Why didn't Vince capitalize? Why didn't he continue to use these guys? It just wasn't Vince's cup of tea, and these guys were working for New Japan. Of course, Mark Rocco also working over there in World of Sport. And that's just the way it is. Why does Vince do anything that he does? And why does he not do things that he should do? That's a question uh, we'll likely never know. And uh, well, we're going to finish up here. One final question. Let's see what it is from Matt S. in Boston, Massachusetts in Boston. He asks, do you believe that Vince McMahon truly killed the territories? It seems to me like many were already on life support when Vince took the WWF from his father. Ooh, that was a good question to end on. Really good question. Another territory question, too. I love it. Um, do I believe Vince killed the territories? I believe from Jim Cornette's aspect why he believes Vince McMahon killed the territories. I believe those are accurate statements more than not. Things that the Cornette has said that Vince has done to escalate the death of the territories. But I think we all know, we all see that things were going to change no matter what. It was just who was going to be the one to do it. And Vince McMahon wasn't even the first man to attempt to go national. You can go back to 75 with Eddie Einhardt. You can go back even earlier than that with some of the original wrestling companies on TV and some of the other guys who tried to take over other territories or expand into other territories prior to anything Vince McMahon ever did. And I, and I mean Vincent Kennedy McMahon when I say that. Do I think Vince killed the territories outright? Absolutely not. you got to go back and look at all the territories that were on their deathbed or already dead when Vince purchased the WWF from his father. Los Angeles and San Francisco were both crumbling. They were, they were pretty much on their last legs. Vince didn't kill those territories. Those territories were gone. Vince never even got to the West Coast. In fact, I believe those guys tried to help him when he got there because they were just looking for a piece of the pie. So the West Coast was basically down to Don Owen by the time Vince really took over the national expansion. Then you kind of look across the Midwest outside of Vern Gagne and the AWA, and Vern, he, he liked taking over other areas as well. Let's, let's not beat around the bush. Now, Greg Gagne has went in recent years and claimed that, you know, Vern had opportunities to, to go national as well prior to Vince or around the time Vince did. It wasn't Vince being the first man to try and go national. It was Vince being the successful man that attempted to go national. Vince succeeded where others in his past and around his time simply could not. Uh, you look at some of the other territories that were dead. The Sheik had killed the Detroit territory, uh, what was it, back by 77. We talked about the Buffalo-Pittsburgh-Cleveland territory. Bruno was no longer, there was no longer a, a Pittsburgh studio wrestling territory. Johnny Powers had, had left the Cleveland territory. Pedro Martinez had dumped Buffalo. So Vince McMahon had the entire Northeast to work with all the way across the Great Lakes, really all the way up into the AWA. So why isn't anybody mentioning how Ole Anderson took Georgia Championship Wrestling, a promotion down south, and, and, and people with the worst geography minds in the world still know where Georgia's located directly above Florida and where states like Ohio and Michigan are located at the northern end of North America, up there by the Great Lakes. And still Ole Anderson went in and said, hey, the Sheik's territory is dead. There's nothing going on in Ohio. I'm going to start running Georgia Championship Wrestling. I'm going to jump from Georgia all the way up to Ohio and Michigan, of all places, just because I can. And they had expanded onto WTBS, which was what? National TV, satellite TV at the time, cable TV at the time. Ole Anderson knew that. So you could argue Ole was trying to go national. It wasn't like he took over a state next to him. Bill Watts had basically split away and ran Leroy McGurk out of business. The same thing with Jerry Jarrett and Nick Goulas up in Tennessee. 
And in most of those cases, it was just a lot of the old promoters refusing to change with the times, which is why Bill Watts ate up Leroy McGurk's territory, which is why Jerry Jarrett ate up the way Nick Goulis was handling business in Tennessee. Things were just changing, and Vince continued to change things as well. I'm not going to sit here and try to remember every territory that still existed when Vince took over with the WWF, but I have to ask how many were successful still by the time Vince took over, and within the next few years, where those territories stood. Unfortunately, you know, the passing of Eddie Graham, Florida went downhill. And Crockett came in, and he started pillaging territories too. Crockett is not an innocent man. He saw what Vince was doing. He's like, hey, I got to do this too. Crockett takes over the WWF time slot on TBS. So now Crockett's national overnight. And he begins buying up the territories that Vince can't buy. Vince works out deals with, eventually with Paul Botch and Larry Matisic, who had taken over the old St. Louis territory. Meanwhile, Crockett's going around, taking over Kansas City and Florida and things of that nature. Truly, there were only a few real territories that just owned their cities. Bill Watts and Mid-South, they expected a certain type of wrestling. Same with Dallas and same with Memphis, you could even argue. So when the WWF tried to come into those territories initially, they were, they did terrible. They were drawing under a thousand people in some of those arenas that Bill Watts was selling out because people didn't want that sports entertainment shit. They wanted their old-fashioned wrestling, those knockdown, drag-out, real fights, if you will. And the same thing with Dallas. People wanted their Von Erichs or they wanted their type of Dallas wrestling. So it was hard for Vince to break into a lot of the southern territories. In fact, even through the 90s, Vince stayed the hell out of the Carolinas until WCW was on its deathbed. And the Attitude Era began to soar. Did Vince have a hand in uh, escalating the death of the territory? Sure he did. He pillaged a lot of the top stars by what? Giving them more money and making them na- nationwide stars and selling merchandise. He did them all favors. They didn't leave Vern Gagne. They didn't leave Ole Anderson for the hell of it. They left for a hell of an opportunity. And, and had they not been happy, they could have left. But they didn't. And why didn't they? Because it was a better opportunity. Vince McMahon gave these guys bigger and better jobs. That's what he did. And unfortunately, you know, yeah, that, that hurt uh, the talent. Uh, you lost a lot of talent in the territories when Vince began doing that around 84 or so. But let's be honest, guys. A lot of the territories were already dying or on the deathbed. A lot of promoters, a lot of the older promoters like Vern Gagne, simply didn't know how to change with the times and refused to change with the times. And that also put a nail in the coffin. So uh, Vince, I'm sure, played a, played a part in there, obviously and absolutely. But did he kill the territories? That's That's a silly statement. And if it wasn't Vince that went national and Vince that took over, it would have been somebody else. It would have been Crockett. It would have been Watts. It would have been somebody else. And I don't know how well things would have transitioned over time with their beliefs in the wrestling system. So uh, it's, it's probably a good thing in the long run that Vince McMahon dominated the 80s and much of the 90s. And we'll wrap things up there this week for the Ask Us Anything episode of The Grenade. I really had a fun couple hours talking with you guys. I love your guys' questions. I have a ton more questions to answer here. I see I apologize if I didn't get to your question today. Blame CM Punk. Blame the Young Bucks. I had to cover their piece, and it just uh, ran a little longer than I expected. However, I will be back very, very soon, guys, so check back soon. More Wrestling Grenade on the way. More Wrestling Goodness on the way with 1987 and the World Wrestling Federation. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Well, we did it, guys. We're back in business. A complete episode of The Grenade in the books. A couple hours of fun answering your questions. And again, I apologize for all of the AEW nonsense that ate into this show. But 
I felt like I had to cover it. It was right here. It was wrestling news. And, and maybe it's brand new right now, but it will be a memory in the years to come. A very memorable memory. That's for sure. But uh, I appreciate you guys sitting here and listening to me answer your questions. I love the questions about the territories. I love being able to talk uh, about a little bit about this and that here and there. Break the monotony. But I tell you what, guys, we're going to be back very soon with more of the WWF 1987. I know a lot of people have been looking forward to the return of that project. And as have I, and I've got myself re-familiarized with where I left off. So I'm ready to go. We'll be right back into the swing of things. We've concluded January. We talked about Saturday night's main event. We talked about all of January TV, all of the house shows, all of the January news, everything in between. And we'll be back very soon with February as we talk all about February news, all of the house shows, and all of the big upcoming happenings throughout the month of February 1987. New WWF Tag Team Champions, the Hart Foundation. Danny Davis fired by President Jack Tunney, but he won't have time to file for unemployment because he immediately finds himself a new job under the employment of Jimmy Hart and the Hart Foundation. Jake the Snake Roberts has an encounter with the Honky Tonk Man, and we're going to find out if Hulk Hogan will accept the challenge issued to him by Andre the Giant for a WWF Championship match in the WrestleMania. All of that, plus the debut of Outback Jack, We'll continue to look at Roddy Piper's pending retirement as he heads into WrestleMania 3 in a hair versus hair match against Adrian Adonis. Dino Bravo has now aligned himself with Johnny V and the Dream Team. We'll have to see how long that tandem lasts. The Can-Am Connection, the next big tag team in the world of professional wrestling. And we'll continue to watch their stock soar until it doesn't. And of course, Macho Man Randy Savage. More great Randy Savage promos on the way. We're going to talk the Macho Man Wrestling, Bruno San Martino, and of course his upcoming battle with Ricky the Dragon Steamboat at WrestleMania. Lots to talk about, lots to get into, and it all begins next week with February 1987 in the World Wrestling Federation. So for now, this is Ray Russell saying, from pillar to post and coast to coast, you pull the pin and we'll pick up the pieces right here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. I'll see you next week. Don't miss it. Be there! the fucking potatoes <laughs>